It's Wednesday, October 27th. You're tuned in to Real Talk. This episode of the show is presented by our friends at Bitcoin Well. I'm excited to let you know that Bitcoin Well's got big things on the horizon as evidenced by their inclusion on that list recently pushed out by the Globe and Mail. You might have heard of it. One of Canada's fastest growing companies. Really amazing. Really remarkable what they've been doing under founding CEO Adam O'Brien. If you have questions about Bitcoin, guy walked up to me yesterday, like on the street, so to speak. But I, I don't know why I said so to speak. Literally, he literally walked up to me on the street. Like, so to speak. What does that even mean? Well, you know, people can say when people approach me on the street. But oh. this guy literally approached me on the street. Well, now it's already turning into a white lie. I mean, it was the sidewalk, but does everybody get my point? And he walked up to me and he said, Bitcoin's going up to 100K, pal. Bitcoin's going up to 100K. I said, I don't know. I don't know. But if I was trying to make sense of whether or not it was going up or why it was going up or why it might go down, I'd look for Benny, who gives me great advice and answers all my questions at Bitcoin Well under the Sponsors tab at RyanJesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. A star-studded edition of the show today. In just about six or maybe seven or eight minutes time, we're going to check in with uh, a guy that I, I love following on Twitter, Bruce Arthur. You probably know Bruce, a columnist for the Toronto Star. Bruce is one of these guys that he's got his wheelhouse. Where he writes about a lot of things, and he's certainly an expert and I think a go-to voice across the country uh, for issues in sport, for issues in pop culture, but he'll oftentimes flirt with politics and, and covers a lot of stuff. I want to get into a couple of stories that are making news right now with Bruce, including the fallout from this investigation into the Chicago Blackhawks organization yesterday, their general manager, Stan Bowman, resigning, also resigning as the general manager for Team USA for the upcoming Olympic Games. Uh, but that may be just the beginning. What does this mean for the organization that has been implicated, uh, described as, as basically covering up allegations of sexual assault back about 11 years ago as the team was chasing its first Stanley Cup in a while, that 2010 Stanley Cup. We're going to find out what this means for for other individuals uh, currently employed in pretty high-profile positions in the National Hockey League. Coach, uh, They call him Coach Q. Uh, Joel Quenville down with the Florida Panthers and Kevin Sheveldayoff, who's now the general manager of the Winnipeg Jets. Uh, those two, along with Stan Bowman and others, on the record uh, for quite some time saying that when these allegations were made around former team video coach Brad Aldrich said we didn't know about this like this is the first we're hearing about this what turns out those were what we call lies and they were lying about not knowing about this saying that it would be inconvenient it would be an interruption which is certainly true it would be an interruption to the team's quest for the cup and so they decided not only to not address the allegations not to do anything about it but to keep the alleged abuser in the position in contact with people including those who had filed these complaints uh we're going to get into this with bruce what does this mean what does this do in a world of sport what does this do for a blackhawks organization uh, one of the nhl's original six plus we want to talk about the family feud that's happening right now with the rogers family 
course, you know the Rogers family of Rogers Communications. They seem to own half of basically everything communications related in Canada. Bruce has got some great comments on that. And so we'll get into his column that ran yesterday in the Toronto Star. Kathleen Petty is going to join us. You probably listen to if you're engaged politically, like many of you are, her podcast, West of Center. She's going to join us to talk about the federal cabinet shuffle and and maybe some of uh, Kathleen's response. I'm excited. She's always the one asking the questions. I'm excited to flip this dynamic around and get her take on what she makes of of the announcements yesterday about the the top three vote getters in Alberta's Senate election. Yeah, I know it's not a thing. It both is a thing and is not a thing. It's a fact there were Senate elections on the ballot when many of you voted in the recent municipal elections. But I think the majority of Canadians know the prime minister is not compelled to observe these Senate elections. So a buddy of mine says to me yesterday, well, like, what's the point? What's the point then? I said, well, they could be senators. They could be appointed senators if a prime minister were to do that. A conservative prime minister by the name of Stephen Harper has appointed senators that were elected in the province of Alberta. Doug Black is a notable one. He's been on this show before. He he is proud to be an elected Alberta senator. But for many people outside Canada, the fact of the matter is they roll their eyes at that. They say that's that's not a thing. And so I'm curious to get Kathleen's take on that. And then. Ian Hanemansing, uh, one of, in, in my mind, the classier individuals, one of the classier and more talented professionals in the Canadian media landscape. You, you know him, of course, as one of the anchors of The National on CBC and the host of Cross Country Checkup, a national call-in radio show. Ian's going to join us to talk about his new book, Pandemic Spotlight. Uh, I've read it cover to cover. He shouts out real talk in the book, by the way, which is amazing. And uh, we're going to get into, you know, why he decided not just to, to sort of take some time and reflect on really the relationships that he's built, these these interviews, these dynamics that he's had with a number of Canadian physicians over the past year and a half, uh, but also why it demanded a book, you know, more than 200 pages of this. And so I'm looking forward to that conversation. Of course, we'll be all over the map in that talk. I'm not just going to talk about doctors during the pandemic. But but what about Ian's position as an anchor on, you know, essentially the biggest nightly news broadcast in the country, or at least one of the top three? Uh, and, you know, and what's that experience been like for him? What about anchoring the national? Peter Mansbridge was on the show a couple of weeks ago. That was the national was Peter's show you know, for three decades. And of course, you know, if you watch it, that the format changed quite dramatically when he left and they went to the four anchor rotation and uh, kind of a different approach to storytelling. So very much looking forward to picking Ian's brain on that. And then Sarah Hoyles is is going to send out a poll from our official show Twitter account at Real Talk RJ. Do you spank your kids or not? A pretty straightforward question. And we're looking forward, uh, Sarah, I know and I suspect I know where the trend is going to go on this, I'm predicting approximately 96% of respondents will vote no, uh, and it may be higher than that, but I'm really looking forward to the comments. And so when Sarah pushes that out, we wanted to do it right when the show launches here. We're doing it right now so we can get live feedback on it. I'm curious to know if anybody will go on the record publicly and say, hell yeah, heck yeah. Well, if they do the poll and they just say, yeah, then they're anonymous. However, if they have a comment, not so anonymous. But here's the thing is like people may want to go on the record and say, yeah, I'll represent the yeah, I'll represent the people that remember back in the day what used to keep us in line. I mean, I think when when most of us were young, I mean, if you're a member of this listening audience, 
What age demographic do we want to pick here? Say 35 and older? I don't know. When did the tide turn? When did when did it become Sam, you're you're a little bit younger. Uh, I'm not than, in the thirty five and older. So, yeah. yeah. But do you I mean, like for me, I have clear memories, uh, not just in my own. I'm talking culturally yeah. across the board, no matter who the family was, no matter who the spanking was just like par for the course. When you were growing up, do you remember like if, if a kid was rabble rousing in elementary school, was their parent walking them to the car, smacking them on the butt on no. the way there? No, not at all. No, it, it's like it's. I don't want to say it was like completely settled when I was a kid, but it certainly wasn't something that was like in your face and talked about. And maybe it was like in this sort of like fading period where it happened at home in some places, but it wasn't it was not highly publicized. Hoyles, how about you? I mean, do you remember that? Was that something where do you, do you remember like were there kids getting spanked in front of you or not? Or was this not a thing when you were young? What was what's your recollection? I remember Sarah. Don't make me pull this car over. Yeah. Yeah, dome. Eh, eh, eh. And the kid that was the biggest troublemaker in the family would always try to sit behind. <laughs> I mean, this is like going to be a very traditional family setup that I'm yeah. describing here. Picture the Griswolds on their way to get their Christmas tree. Big old type traditional wagon. family. The station wagon. You either want it to be in the very, very back, facing back, or sitting behind the driver so you knew you'd be the driver would be less able to reach back and spank you on the fly as they were driving um we're going to talk to trauma therapist robin peters bennett who's speaking at the institute of child psychology conference they're actually having a panel on spanking and before we get to bruce arthur i want to pull back the curtain a little bit and ask you about what it's been like to produce this segment if i may we don't always take this angle when it comes to our storytelling but i know that i asked you these two words together now are so loaded they never used to be i'm going to try to take them back i'm going to try to sort of lessen the firepower of these two words both sides we wanted to cover right <laughs> donald trump ruined both sides for everybody there's good people on both sides Sorry. you know but but when we talk about there's two or more sides to every story we were endeavoring to put a round table together i had this gleam in my eye because i couldn't wait to see who you would find to be the pro spanking advocate um but you had a hell of a time finding somebody that wanted to go on the record in a debate to defend spanking in 2021 yeah i mean exactly i i put out lots of different emails i put lots of different asks out saying you know looking for Folks that in the past have said, yes, yeah, spanking's a-okay or spanking yeah. sometimes as a form of punishment um, or discipline is is vital and important. It's good to have in your tool belt. Yeah, <laughs> well, I mean, if you know, the kids know you're not going to mess around. Oh, yeah. But but then also there's that there's that irony of, you know, is the kid getting spanked for hitting someone at school? And if so, what's the point? Like, you do not hit people as they're just laying the smack down with like the open hand or the belt or the or the the switch. I think they used to call it on Little House in the Prairie back in the day. Wasn't wasn't that it? People that read the books by Laura Ingalls Wilder. Dad told you to go out and get a switch, break a switch off the tree. Spatula. Spatula. Uh, hairbrush. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, geez, whatever's nearby. 
you get the idea how this could prove to be somewhat problematic. And so I'm looking forward to seeing where that poll result goes. You can follow us on Twitter at RealTalkRJ and chime in on that. And and uh, we'll, we'll check in on that leading up to that conversation, which is coming up in about, I'm going to say, 75 minutes time or so coming up in just over an hour from now. Before we get to the columnist of the Toronto Star, Bruce Arthur, on the Blackhawks and on the Rogers family feud, I want to remind you that our friends at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge right now have their biggest sale of the year going on through the month of October. And why? does this especially matter to you well if you've been one of those would-be buyers that's been frustrated with their lack of inventory all these factors conspiring to keep car dealers from stocking their lots well well, that time has come to an end and scott and brad the team at st albert dodge were telling me i mean they've been unloading trailers their teams have been hard at work over the past couple of weeks more than 300 dodge ram 1500s coming in the whole bunch of jeeps including more than 140 grand cherokees you can find them all online under the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com also wanted to remind you that our friends at park power i mean a big message they want you to take every time you hear their name mentioned on this show is that if you're in the province of alberta you can choose where you're getting your utilities it's up to you so why not get the best deal and why not support a utilities provider that supports your favorite show At parkpower.ca, you can compare rates on electricity, natural gas, and internet. And when you sign up, it's never been easier. Their team handles it for you, breaking up with the previous company. You don't have to make the phone call. And the promo code 2021-REALTALK gets you $70 off your first bill. Well, this is a a gut-wrenching story out of the world of professional sports, Uh, one of the most storied franchises in the United States, quite frankly, one of the NHL's original six. The Chicago Blackhawks, mired in controversy after a four-month investigation has wrapped up nearly 140 witnesses consulted. It shows that the entire team, including executive leadership and the team's head coach at the time, conspired to cover up allegations of sexual assault. Bruce Arthur has been keeping an eye on this story. The well-read columnist uh, from the Toronto Star making his Real Talk debut this morning. Bruce, it's great to see your face. Thanks for making time for us. Ryan, a pleasure to be here with you. This has uh, been an interesting story because I think that there, there, there have been rumors that have been swirling around these alleged incidents uh, since 2010. But it wasn't until this investigation kicked off that sort of the mainstream media was put in a position to be forced to talk about it. And then yesterday, it really blew the doors off this story. Now we're seeing the fallout start to happen. How have you been wrapping your mind around this from the first time you heard about it? Well, the first thing is a huge amount of credit to Rick Westhead of TSN, a friend uh, who I'm proud to call a friend, Katie Strang of The Athletic, who I'm proud to call a friend, both and proud to call them both colleagues. A lot of sports media isn't geared towards reporting on things like this because for the same reasons, actually, in some ways that it happened. Um, whenever you have institutions which are considered the most important thing, where they're more important than the people within them, you get the potential for abuse. That's how Larry Nasser happens with USA Gymnastics. If you want to go back further, that's how it happens at Penn State, where one coach was allowed to assault another, a kid and another coach saw him. And it, nothing happened until Jerry Sandusky was found years later. Um, this is what happens within big organizations when the fidelity is not to the people within them. So what you have in Chicago is you have a video coach who sexually assaulted a player. And then it was found out eventually by the organization and covered up. 
not just covered up for the three weeks before the video coach left the organization, but covered up until this report. And the one thing about this, you really have to appreciate that the report that the Blackhawks commissioned is actually a real report. The fact, like the fact that it's cleared out their front office of the people who were involved and knew at the time, the fact that we don't know if what ownership knew, we probably will never know. They claim not to have known anything. But other than that, they didn't spare anybody. Um, then that's how we know something close to the real truth, that and the journalists who I mentioned off the top. This is, uh, I, I guess, to a point, like you suggested, one of those stories that is going to demand attention, uh, not just across the National Hockey League or across the United States, but around the world, because because it represents or it's a manifestation of so many of the symptoms that, that can allow something like this to happen, like the logo. I mean, just even the culture in hockey, you know, you don't yeah. step on the logo in the dressing room. You play for the logo on the front, not the name on the back. I mean, one of the details around this i think that that has been striking and i want to be careful how i phrase this but like i said a few minutes ago uh, coach q joel quenville the, the blackhawks coach at the time now with the florida panthers probably was not wrong back in may 2010 as this team that stacked team is chasing this stanley cup and he says we can't address this right now because it will be a major disruption in our locker room he's not wrong about that it certainly would have been but it goes to show when you talk about the culture of sport or at the win at all costs type mentality that people are willing to sweep things under the rug. And that's what I think is resonating with a lot of people right now. How could an organization possibly do that? Well, and the stuff like where they let uh, Brad Aldrich, the video coach, celebrate with the Stanley Cup in the presence of the player who they call John Doe. Um, the, again, Hockey is an insular sport. It is a, and maybe every sport's like this, but I feel like hockey probably has a little more of it in which it's very protective towards its own people. And what Joel Quenville did in that moment is almost less important than what, than what Joel Quenville has done in the 10 years since. Because at the time, the incentive system in professional sports, as in so many other industries, is messed up. It's that you winning is everything. Like how many stories... Uh, have been written or broadcast about Joel Quinville and the Chicago Blackhawks in an adulate uh, in, that that basically make them out to be heroes. And I've been guilty of this as a sports journalist because the scale of wins and losses and the importance of wins and losses and achievement in sports is almost everything. And he made that decision in that moment. Now, the last 10 years, though, the fact that the the end result of this was, yes, that Brad Aldrich left the organization, but he was allowed to leave the organization, go and coach kids hockey and assault a kid, right? Like, that is a fundamental dereliction of duty for the Chicago Blackhawks because you can say that in, in that short amount of time during the Stanley Cup playoffs, yeah, it was the, maybe the right thing to do to not bring this out and disrupt this giant incentive system you're working on. But then there was nothing public. There was no public reckoning to the point where Joel Quenville and Brad Shoveldayoff, who's the general manager of the Winnipeg Jets, both this summer said that they never knew anything about this. And the report comes out and says they were involved in a meeting along with then Blackhawks president, John McDonough, with Stan Bowman, the general manager who's since stepped aside, with Al McIsaac, another member of the front office. They were in that meeting when this was discussed. So they were talking, they, maybe they didn't remember, but otherwise they lied about it this summer. And so 
Like this, this is a protective device from an organization that only cared about itself. They didn't care about that kid who got assaulted down the road. They wanted to keep it out of the Blackhawks section of the newspaper. I know. I mean, you've already alluded to this, uh, Bruce. We're talking to Bruce Arthur from the Toronto Sun. Uh, I mean, the fact that Brad Aldrich was was given his day with the cup, that traditional day with the cup. Everybody in the organization that wins, it gets a day to throw a little party, spend time with their friends. The Blackhawks sent two representatives from the organization. And on that day, one of the organization's representatives is allegedly touched by Brad Aldrich. I mean, this, uh, you know, I I hate to, you know, make this even more inflammatory, but I see direct correlation to the way that the Catholic Church has managed a lot of these allegations over the years. Just take the priest and reassign them, right? I mean, they're still putting employees and interns of this organization into harm's way. I mean, this is a cultural problem. You mentioned that Rocky Wirtz, the team's ownership group, second generation owner, has said that anybody in an executive position associated with this team back in 2010 is going to be gone here. Is that enough? I mean, there were implications here that sort of zero in on the players, too. This was tough on this John Doe with regards to the response from a lot of these players, many of them still prominent stars in the National Hockey League. Yeah. So again, this goes back to that idea of institutional culture, right? Like that, what, what is the Catholic church except a vehicle to protect the Catholic church? They basically, I mean, we, we've kind of all seen it. It's they've been the architects of the biggest child sexual abuse um, kind of assault ring in human history that we know of. And they have at every stage tried to protect themselves. And the Blackhawks did this as well. Now think about this for a second. When we talk about culture, we talk about the importance of institutions over individuals. Um, they did this for a video coach, a, like a video coach. I mean, maybe Brad Aldrich was exceptional at his job, but you can find other video coaches. This is not uh, this is not Jonathan Taves. This is not Patrick Kane. This is not John McDonough. This is not Stan Bowman. This is not someone who is a high-ranking re- member of the organization of the sport. It's a it's a fungible part, and they buried it for ten years. They buried it until people came forward. What, and we probably shouldn't kind of keep this to the Chicago Blackhawks, what other institutions have done the same within the world of hockey? Like right now in the NFL, the Washington football team, there are 650,000 emails that were investigated by the league. A select few of them leaked, and the result was that the coach of the Las Vegas Raiders, John Gruden, had to resign right? Because of the language that he used in, in a whole bunch of different hateful ways over the years in emails with the main lawyer for the league, the NFL still will not release those emails, right? And they, they have them all. They won't release them. And they said it because people were promised anonymity in the investigation. In the Blackhawks investi- investigation, in that report, they grant anonymity to several sources. Like how much is being covered up at every level of what, like, and the problem with that is once you speak in the, in the way I just did, it, it becomes easy to get cons- conspiratorial, right? This is kind of where QAnon comes in, like where QAnon decides to attribute real world problems to imaginary situations, right? Where like, instead of the Catholic church, it's, it's Joe Biden, right? Things like that. But there is real institutional cover up and incentives for institutional cover-up across society. And so hockey is one part of it, and hockey is an especially self-protective part. But 
what happened with the Blackhawks can happen with any significant institution where the incentive system is built out like that. Bruce, I saw a comment in our live chat. I think it was Scott. I uh, want to attra- credit them, but I, it's, it's skipped out on me. we got a lot going on in that chat right now. But Scott basically said something along the lines of it. And, and let me recognize, Bruce, that you opened uh, crediting the uh, the tenacious work of two journalists that deserve credit. Uh, for really ensuring that this story was told. But Scott said something along the lines of, let's be honest, maybe a lot of these journalists are concerned about protecting their access to the team. Uh, This is a whole different premise. Uh, We had a pretty high profile story. I'm not sure if it was on your radar, but a former Edmonton Eskimo, Grey Cup champion, now, of course, covering or was covering the Edmonton Elks broadcast, uh, was recently fired for comments he made uh, about, I thought, rather benign comments, but they shone the spotlight on the team's general manager. He was cut from the radio broadcast like five or six games in. People are saying, well, what do you expect? I mean, he's covering the team. I'm sitting there going, well, how are people going to expect legitimate coverage of the team if journalists or talk hosts or color guys are afraid of getting fired for speaking out. Can you give us some insight into that? I mean, you've been doing this for years. Well, and it's funny because I haven't been a sports reporter for basically two years because I've been covering the pandemic, but you're right in that. And it's not just in sports access. Journalism causes people to compromise because the more, you know, that you are told in confidence, the harder it can be to report it and the har- and the much more difficult if you have an access information situation where you're relying on people to tell you things, if the- you need access to that information in order to do your job. And again, this is an incentive system. The highest paid people in sports journalism are the insiders, right? They're the people who can tell you the most about the sport, not just in hockey, but football, basketball, everything. Um, and so there, there has to be some horse trading of information there. The same thing happens with political reporters, right? Political reporters who are, who are granted inside access to political campaigns, and it doesn't matter the party here. Um, they are, there's certain stuff they're not going to say. Now, when it gets into this realm, again, credit to TSN and The Athletic for empowering Rick Westhead and Katie Strang to report on this stuff. But... That's not how sports journalism is geared. And in, in some ways, it's not even how political journalism is truly geared. Sports journalism, j- journalism is generally geared to kind of a less threatening, less kind of less far seeing and digging kind of version of how you cover this stuff because it's difficult. What happened with the Edmonton Elks and Edmonton has a reputation as a truly insular paranoid franchise in the CFL, in the Canadian Football League, which is supposed to be the league for everybody. Right. Um, The fact that they fired a play by a color guy on the on the radio because he criticized the general manager. Now, extrapolate that across all of sports. Not every franchise is that paranoid, but there are lines that. If you work within, you work for teams, you work in broadcasting, there's lines that most people can't cross, right? And with this kind of story, I would hope that it it kind of erases those boundaries, that everybody should be writing about this. Like Sportsnet has the NHL rights. Um, they paid an enormous amount of money for them. It's of corporate interest to their owner. They should be covering the hell out of this story. And Sportsnet has been notorious since they got the deal to not want to look at the more unsavory parts of sports. If you look at stuff like concussions, the NHL has their own media arm, NHL.com. There's a lot of really good people who work there, but they don't write about how the NHL has handled concussions. It's not something that is done. And so you see this across sports is that leagues and teams have now their own distribution channels. 
Does that sound familiar? <laughs> it's something that happens in politics, right? It's something that's happening more and more because the independent scrutiny of journalism is now something that is comfortable for institutions. And the fact that journalism's in as much trouble as it is leads to some really cool, big questions down the road as to how society is actually going to work if newspapers don't survive, if journalism is further marginalized, and if the power, most powerful institutions in the world take control of all the channels of information. That's an amazing point and an important one. Uh, Bruce, respect your time. I'm gonna, uh, just uh, one more question on this. Quickly want to talk about Ed Rogers with you as well, and then we'll move on to talk federal politics with Kathleen Petty, Ian Hanamansing in about 20 minutes from now. Uh, let me ask you about what you think the future looks like for for Jets general manager Kevin Sheveldayoff, for, for Panthers coach uh, Joel Quenville. Uh, both of them, it sounds like, are going to be talking to NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman this week. Um, I mean, do those two keep their jobs? How, how, how sort of wide does this swap? cut do you think if the report is accurate and they were in that meeting and they were part of a conspiracy to bury that for 10 years and indeed lied about it about it this summer if that's the accurate timeline that we're looking at explain to me how a league that markets to families that markets itself as an upstanding part of the community it's not always true but that's how they market themselves how the Winnipeg Jets or the Florida Panthers can keep those guys in their current jobs, how the NHL can allow those guys to stay in their current jobs. Like, I, I, I won't be shocked by almost anything that would happen. The Florida Panthers are 6-0, one of the best teams in the league, and Joel Quenville's the coach. It would take a lot for an organization to fire him or a league to step in. But I'm not naive enough to think that professional sports leagues are everything they tell us they are. Right. In terms of all that stuff about community and family and all those things about identity and tribe. Um, but I can't see how this doesn't cross every line that you should have morally, ethically, in terms of public relations in, in every way, because they buried the assault of a player and other staffers, which I mean, that really hurt people. This is the kind of stuff that every institution should reckon with if it happens to them. I hope it happens in the NHL. I mean, it's been it's been sad to see. Uh, you know, Theron Fleury's highs and lows. It, it's It's been inspiring in a way, though it feels like a weird word to use to see what Sheldon yeah. Kennedy has done after after being yeah. abused to go on and do an incredible work on on advocacy around sexual assault. But Bruce, I don't have to tell yeah. you, I mean, the that whole idea of, of Graham James, this disgraced predator I mean, this 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 coach that sexually assaulted a number of players over a number of years, uh, you know, being named the hockey news's man of the year, uh, you know, right in the mid of all that con amidst of all that controversy you you would think uh i think that that, that this would have resonated about the almost generational impacts or the decades-long impacts of sexual assault and cover-up and this permissive type culture and and i just see this uh as a story that i think demands some reckoning and what that looks like remains to be seen you hope so i mean if you talk to sheldon kennedy today i think theron flurry is a different story for a number of different reasons and i find it personally really sad to see where yeah. he's wound up going in terms of how, I don't know if it's how he processes the damage in his life or whatever it is, but it's, it's, it's a truly dispiriting thing. Sheldon Kennedy is one of the greatest Canadians we've ever produced. Um, Sheldon Kennedy, people forget, Sheldon Kennedy rollerbladed across the country yeah. to, to raise awareness and money for victims of sexual abuse. And he would tell me that he would get, he would stop in the towns and then he'd be 10 miles out of town and a truck would pull up and someone would say, I didn't want to talk to you in front of all those people, but this is what happened to me. Yeah. Sheldon Kennedy has been carrying that for 25, 30 years. And he's, and he only recently stepped away from the advocacy work on the very front lines of dealing with victims of sexual assault because he had been carrying that weight for so long, but not everyone 
has the capacity to respond the way Sheldon Kennedy did. I wish they did, but it's hard. Like that's what makes him a hero, right? Is that he still carries all that damage. He just has channeled it into a different way. That John Doe said that this this sexual assault weighed on him greatly. He's never had an NHL career. We don't know what would have happened to him. But when you start to consider people disposable parts of a machine, this is one of the consequences of it. Well said, Bruce. Uh, before we thank you for your time, I want to uh, note this column that you put out on Monday in the Toronto Star. People can read it at thestar.com. A more powerful Ed Rogers is not what Toronto needs. He's already the least popular sports owner in town uh, to bring people up to speed. Yesterday, we we're talking about it a little bit. I mean, Ed and Martha Rogers, the, the son and daughter of Ted Rogers, the I mean, a business legend in the country, the architect of Rogers Communications, the owners of pretty much half of everything across the country, it seems <laughs> uh, in fighting. There's two separate boards. Ed's naming himself the chair, trying to run his family out. Martha says she's going to stand up to him uh, and, and, and lawyer up herself in honor of her dad. She says she's got their mom on her side the hell's going on with the rogers clan uh i don't think ted quite put the right guardrails for uh the fight that was eventually going to erupt over his legacy like this is not just ed versus his sister it's ed versus his sister and his sister and his sister and his mother yeah um and he might win this fight like he's basically said that i don't like you guys i'm going to have my own board and i'm going to elect them this is like this is one of the biggest companies in the country everyone knows what rogers is rogers is on the name of the arena in edmonton um, this is this has huge implications for the telecom industry because it's unclear just how good of a steward Ed would be for his company. He's always kind of wanted that. Um, what I wrote about is that he wanted he didn't want to retain Masai Ujiri, uh, who's one of the most celebrated, successful, and admired sports executives in kind of all of sports. Um, and he was the only guy in the organization who wanted to do that. What's happening now? And this is actually very funny, very Toronto. Um, either they're going to go to court and someone's going to determine who's actually the board of Rogers communications and there's going to be injunctions and there's going to be all this other stuff in order for the non ed side to win. They might have to remove him as the chair of the family trust, which kind of is a big concern, which deals with all of the Rogers family fortune and influence to do that. You need seven to 10 votes of a special group of 10 people of those 10 people. Two of them are ed flunkies and one is ed. Um, so you need the other seven of the other seven. You can get all the family members. You can get Ted's old friends. You still wouldn't have the two thirds majority you would need because the seventh vote is Toronto mayor, John Tory, who's been secretly making a hundred thousand dollars a year as a board member for Rogers communications for all the time that he's been mayor. And apparently according to Martha Rogers spent nine hours at a meeting on this the other day, this is very Toronto old money, but it's also Canadian big money. And this is what happens when a family disintegrates, when you have a son who wants to live up to his father and who apparently is hated by the rest of his family. It is, a very significant Canadian story. People should people need to read your column in the Star because you go on about how after January sixth, he took his family down to Mar-a-Lago. I mean, a big Trump guy, and and uh, obviously hanging in the balance here, the stability of uh, we're talking about NHL franchises, NBA franchises. I mean, the, the yeah. Rogers with a significant ownership stake in like the Blue Jays and the Maple Leafs. I love you. You know what jumped off the page from your column to me? Quote, he's already the least popular sports ownership figure since Harold Ballard, which if anybody pays attention to sport, that's a hell of a comparison. 
Well, the, you go against Masai Ujiri in this town, and that's where you're going to wind up. Like, honestly, Masai won an NBA title in Toronto, which as someone who you, I played basketball as a kid, I thought that was impossible. I didn't. Like, I still am I'm astonished that it happened. Um, Ed owns the Toronto Blue Jays. Ed Rogers owns the Toronto Blue Jays, but Ed is essentially the strongest figure there if he wants to be. And the Toronto Blue Jays have actually built something that's pretty reasonable. I don't think they're a perfect franchise, but they could be something for years to come. Um, Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment was split like, you know, like the, the mythical baby between Rogers and Bell and Larry Tannenbaum's the third owner. Larry Tannenbaum's not going to be in the picture forever. There is a scenario in which he divests his shares uh, within, I would say, probably five years, at which point it's Rogers and Bell. And Rogers, if Ed wins, will be the Ed Rogers show, right? Right now, Melinda Rogers Hickson, his sister, is also on the board of MLSC. She wanted to keep Masai. She'd be gone, presumably. Mm -hmm. And so you'd have the Ed show and then whatever corporate governance Bell comes up with, which means Ed will. There's a scenario here where Ed is going to be the single most powerful sports figure in this country. And I don't know. I don't feel like that's a great idea for about a hundred different reasons. <laughs> you can read Bruce Arthur's column at the star.com. Really appreciate you making time for us this morning. It's been great to have you on the show. You bet, Ryan. And I appreciate uh, you staying sane within the Alberta political context. Oh, it's hey, not it, an easy feat. it's a tall order some days, but we stand <laughs> steadfast. Look forward to chatting with you again, Bruce. That's Bruce Arthur. You can subscribe uh, to his Twitter feed as well, of course, by following him at Bruce underscore Arthur. Kathleen Petty coming up in just a second. We want to remind you how proud we are to partner with Canada's online university. That's Athabasca University. How does AU work? Well, I mean, it's simple. They have custom-built programs and courses that you can take that fit with your schedule. You've got 55 hours one week you can put in. Perfect. you got five minutes one week and you need to put your studies on the back burner because life happens. Perfect. Totally doable because you learn at your own pace. You can find out more about their programs and courses, the admissions process, by checking them out online at AthabascaU.ca. We're also really proud, you know, to partner with the team at Kubi Energy Solutions. They're installing solar applications across Western Canada, two offices in Edmonton and Kamloops, and they can travel. Their team does it all the time. I loved the conversation yesterday talking about ag. We were talking about geothermal and how ag producers, in particular cattle ranchers, are trying to find ways to keep their watering troughs, you know, liquid as opposed to freezing over in the winter i was talking to jake about this this summer there's a solar application for that of course there is all kinds of ideas you can get your free quote today at kubienergy.ca and of course you know that two days from now we will present trash talk in partnership with our friends at local waste services by a mile the most emails we receive are submissions to trash talk if you've got something to get off your mind something you got to get off your chest a little steam to blow off you can send us an email to talk at ryanjesperson.com it can be about anything we've got one about trick-or-treating coming up from terry on friday i can't wait to get into that one the team at local waste services has been keeping it local for a quarter century construction commercial and residential waste and recycling collection in alberta and saskatchewan at localwaste.ca it's been a huge week in politics. Obviously, Calgary's new council swearing in on Monday, Edmonton's new council swearing in on Tuesday, and of course, yesterday live uh, in front of Canadians, the Prime Minister revealing his new cabinet. Some pretty major shuffles, keeping an eye on it, no doubt. Veteran broadcaster, the executive producer of CBC News in Calgary, and the host of the wildly popular West of Center podcast, 
Kathleen Petty. It's so good to have you here. Thanks for making time for us. What fun. First of all, I love Bruce Arthur sort of uh, saying, you know, he sympathizes with your struggle to stay sane, (laughs) uh, given uh, the state of Alberta politics. And that's where we are. Right. Right. I mean, you know, someone like Bruce Arthur would be so acutely aware of how crazy uh, this province is politically right now. And goodness knows it keeps me busy. And I, I know it keeps you busy, too. Well, every once in a while, you you know, you have to remind yourself that instead of being the storyteller, when you become the story, in this case, Alberta, yeah. you, you don't always want to be the lead story, <laughs> Kathleen, night after night after night. Well, you know, I said the other day on Twitter, just I generally don't randomly post stuff, but I, you know, just it's so obvious that this province, in my view, is the most politically interesting province in the country and has been for a while. And I would suggest will be for a while still. Let me ask you this, because I want to talk federal cabinet shuffle with you, but we're talking about Alberta and we're talking about Alberta politics, obviously municipal elections uh, just a short time ago, week and a half ago. And as part of that, these referendum questions down in Calgary, they were voting on fluoride. Everybody's talking about daylight saving time, the equalization referendum. And then, of course, the Senate elections. And yesterday, Elections Alberta releasing a list of the top three vote getters. These are Alberta's, I suppose, Elected senators in waiting, though, really, that's not how it works. What do you make of the whole exercise? Well, first of all, uh, they're not elections. Let's just be clear, because we don't elect senators. So it's basically a poll. Who do you really like and who do you want us to advocate for? And we know that uh, when Justin Trudeau was here uh, not all that long ago, and he was doing an avail with Mehed Nenshi at the time, and he was asked, Okay, so Alberta is going to have this Senate election, and I do put that in quotations. Uh, So will you appoint any of them? And he sort of smiled and said, you know what? Uh, Good luck to all of them. And uh, those who sort of gain the most votes, they're more than welcome to apply. (laughs) So, I mean, essentially, he's saying, no, I won't be appointing. And and people are sort of thinking back. I mean, we've had Senate elections off and on for a lot of years, Senate elections. Just assume the quotation, air quotes. Uh, when I say that over the years and five have been appointed, but one by Mulroney and four by Stephen Harper. So it's conservative, either PC or CPC that have appointed these nominees. But I think Justin Trudeau has made it very clear uh, that uh, he won't be doing same unless these people want to apply. And in which case, perhaps uh, they might. But I mean, this is a political statement more than anything else as part of the bigger conversation about pushing back and Alberta being respected and pursuing a fair deal. So it's all part of that. But, you know, CBC has done polling, Ryan, and and with that polling, we've done focus groups. And um, I highly recommend focus groups, anyone who's doing polling, boy, the insights you get from people. And it was very apparent to Uh, all of us listening to the focus groups, including those who would be traditional supporters of conservative parties, that they knew exactly what this was, right? They understood it for what it was. People, uh, I don't think, are given enough credit. Uh, I think they more often than not get it, and they got it on the Senate. Uh, They got it on uh, the equalization referendum. Uh, what confused them actually was the uh, daylight saving referendum. Nobody got that. Yeah. What did like 
it's so it's so I mean, essentially, yesterday, Albertans learned that they will we will continue to adjust our clocks twice a week because the results were as close. I mean, it, it looked like Quebec's referendum years ago. I mean, it was essentially split 50 50. But Kathleen, I'm sure yeah. you heard this as much as I did, as often as I did from people that are saying, I mean, these are people that are showing up to vote. These are the people that 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 give a shit, quite frankly. And they're going, I don't even really totally understand the question. I'm not 100 percent certain on what we're voting about. No. No, and I can tell you it was so evident. It was uh, sort of an episode of Who's On First. Do you remember yeah, that? Uh, happened? Costello Classic. Well, that's what it was in the focus group. I kid you not. We spent more time trying to explain what the consequence of a yes or no vote to that question would be. People really weren't computing. And it became apparent, at least to me, but I think everyone from CBC who was in on these focus groups, that the question that they would have liked is sort of starting with the statement, Alberta uh, will no longer change clocks twice a year. So which time zone would you like to exist in, mm. right? Mountain or standard, or sorry, daylight or, or standard time. And because I think people broadly agree that we don't want to keep changing our clocks. So acknowledge that and then give people a choice. But there was no choice here. So I do think some people who might have voted yes were really just voting yes to not changing the clocks. Mm. They just don't want to do it anymore, as opposed to because I know our focus group people weren't clear, uh, you know, what whether we'd be a mountain or standard as a result of a yes or no vote. I want to keep my equalization question to you sort of as broad and wide sweeping i'm asking you a shotgun spray question as as opposed to a a rifle question here uh there are many things going on with regards to this this question about equalization uh number one people will say uh you know i mean some of the key observations here's my bullet point list jason kenny was one of the architects of the current formula of equalization he's asking people to assess his own work he's saying it's unacceptable other people are saying uh this isn't necessarily uh you know an argument for alberta separating or anything along those lines but this is just acknowledging mm-hmm. that that equalization's formula is broken and deserves to be re-examined then you have the assertion from the premier just a couple of days ago when people are saying well 62 63 percent of people say they'd like to see it pulled from the constitution that's barely any considering voter turnout was like 39 percent the premier saying hey more people voted on the equalization question than people that voted for the mayor of calgary so it is valid it is legitimate and we'll use it as a you know i'm going to use this as a reference to a segment we have coming up later on in the show it, it's it's the spanking stick that jason kenny wants to use in dealing with justin trudeau what do you make of this non-binding referendum question well first of all uh jason kenny has plainly acknowledged that he's not pursuing the uh, excising the equalization from the constitution so he has said repeatedly that this is about leverage I have made the point repeatedly that leverage is not assessed by the person applying it. Leverage is assessed by the person is being applied against. Mm. They're the ones who decide if there's leverage. And based on what Justin Trudeau said just a few days ago, he doesn't seem particularly leveraged to me. Um, the other thing is that what did people think they were voting on? Uh, When they answered that question, I suspect a lot of people were actually, uh, you know, thinking about what the premier said, that this is really more about pursuing a fair deal and not getting rid of equalization. And the other thing to remember, too, Ryan, is equalization has a 
has existed for a very long time, long before it was in the Constitution. The principles in the Constitution, but just, you know, as a thought exercise, take it out. Okay, take it out. So what? The federal government spends its money the way it chooses to spend its money. So it, it sent equalization payments before uh, it was uh, put into the Constitution, and it can send equalize, equalization payments after. It, right, it, those are federal spending powers, and that doesn't change. So, you know, the principles in the Constitution, but I think the real issue is the formula. And a lot of people have suggested the formula needs to be fixed. There's a great piece. I'll just plug Trevor Toome. Uh, he's got a great piece in Finances of the Nation. I tweeted it out yesterday. And even he acknowledges, look, because of COVID uh, and all the money that has flowed into provinces, a lot of provinces have essentially been equalized by that. And so the formula is such you could end up with some weird uh not necessarily for sure, but its potential is that Ontario could find itself receiving equalization. And as it receives equalization, the Maritimes could lose uh, payments at the same time. I mean, it's, I don't pretend to completely understand the formula. No one knows it better than Trevor Toome. I agree. Um, but, but, but I think it is fair to sort of look at that and say, yeah, this probably could stand to be uh, reformed and revise. It has been changed many times over the years. Jason Kenney, to be fair to him, his argument is when they designed the current formula, uh, the situation in the country was different, uh, which is true, and things have changed. But I would also say, don't we want a, um, a formula that can survive these changes? In other words, you know, that it has enough integrity that it can respond to changing circumstances and still remain fair because what we do know, I think people largely support the idea of equalization. I would suggest even Albertans uh, support the principle of it. And again, I'll go back to our focus groups. They said that even those who were voting yes, supported equalization in principle. They understood that by voting yes, uh, that this was about trying to give Jason Kenney the leverage he says he needs to uh, push for a fairer deal that they knew it wasn't a, they knew equalization wasn't being punted uh, from the constitution. So people do make those calculations. They do need to be given more credit, I think sometimes than, than we give voters. Um, but I'll go back to my original point. Leverage is assessed by the person is being, or entity is being applied against. And the prime minister does not sound terribly leveraged that's a great point to make uh if you want to see that uh, the tweet that kathleen sent out you can follow her on twitter at kathleen underscore petty you can uh follow her podcast on twitter at west of center cbc before we talk national politics and cabinet i just have to say i listened to your west of center episode with outgoing mayors nahed nenshi and don iverson as i was driving back from saskatchewan from a family thanksgiving gathering and the whole time i'm going like it was something wasn't it that was something people need to take 40 minutes or so and listen to that episode i mean those guys were throwing mic drop bombs yeah that was yeah it was i I mean mean, did you know ahead of time i mean everybody hopes for that type of interview but you rarely get it from politicians sometimes the ones on the way out will speak like that but did you feel something brewing yes 
Yeah, I mean, in a word, yes. I, I sort of expected, uh, Nenshi is never shy about sort of sharing his opinions. Uh, although I think even had Nenshi went even further than I've heard him go before, I would say. And I think uh, Don Iveson, you know, he tends to be a little more careful, but he was a lot less careful <laughs> than he has been in, in previous interviews. Because I've done the two together before, probably a year earlier. But yeah, I have to say it was my expectation, but you know as well as I do, you have an expectation, or at least a hope, that it's going to be a frank, honest uh, conversation, but it doesn't necessarily always sort of live up to your expectation. I would say it not only lived up to, but went beyond. And then, of course, I saw, you know, lots of others wanting to do the same combo as a result. And who can blame them, really, uh, because they were so good. But honestly, yeah. you know, one one of the things that really struck me was when uh, Nancy talked about members of cabinet calling him, basically saying, help, help. Yeah. And uh, like, to be clear, you know, you're, ta- one- yeah, you're talking about cabinet ministers in Jason Kenney's cabinet. Nancy yes. essentially telling you they were texting him from the cabinet table. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. It was it was a remarkable interview. You deserve credit. I pity the journalist that's going to try to bring those two in and recreate what you got from them after you did it. You don't try to do that. That's not a that's not a recipe for success. But in the moment, it was great. In the moment, it was fantastic. It's must listen. People need to check it out. Um, We we can uh, let our audience know we've got Ian Hannah Mansing right now in the bullpen, ready to go in about five minutes. These are like like back to back CBC stars on the show today. I'm loving it. (laughs) Uh, But uh, let me ask you about the I mean, we can get into federal cabinet. We could talk for an hour, obviously. Uh, But but, uh, you know, your your, your sort of overarching themes that you notice what you saw is significant. Uh, Christia Freeland, uh, obviously a shining star in Trudeau's cabinet. Some would believe her to be the heir apparent with the Liberal Party retains her role as deputy PM minister of finance. But a lot of shuffling, including health, defense. I mean, all the big ones, foreign affairs happening yesterday. What really jumped out at you? Well, obviously, environment and climate change and natural resources. I mean, that was sort of the biggie. And I I find it fascinating, actually, even Seamus O'Regan, honestly, because labor. uh, Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's going to be interesting because don't forget. Uh, they've been consulting on the just transition over the summer, right? That just transition legislation, which is to, you know, help with the transition uh, off of uh, jobs uh, centered on on fossil fuels, oil and gas, and transitioning to other things. And so Seamus O'Regan will have a big role in that. So people have to remember that too. Uh, and he was the natural resources minister. He had a very good relationship with uh, Sonia Savage. She acknowledges that. He acknowledges that. But, you know, Jonathan Wilkinson, and I've had him on Westwood Center as well, uh, says he's had a very good relationship during his time in environment and climate change uh, with Jason Nixon. And uh, certainly listening to Jason Kenney, uh, he seems uh, to have a lot of positive things to say about Jonathan Wilkinson. So as much as I think people perceive uh, Stephen Gilbo as now environment minister and environment and climate change minister as a poke in the eye for Alberta. I would argue that all of these are going to work in tandem. Seamus O'Regan, Jonathan Wilkinson and Stephen Gilbo. And I think people who are even critical of uh, the Kenny government acknowledge that Gilbo is you know, a, a, a bit of a stick in the eye. He is, you know, has been a longtime environmental activist against pipelines, specifically TMX. When he announced he was running for the Liberals, he said, I'm going to run, but I don't like uh, the expansion, the TMX 
uh, expansion. So, you know, he's been opposed to it. And, you know, he had some troubled uh, times trying to defend Bill uh, C-10 on, uh, you know, online regulation. And so he, he's not always been uh, the most stellar communicator. But, uh, but again, I would add that you have to look at sort of the whole of government and, uh, and the key portfolios. And I, I will note also that when I think it was, yeah, it was clean energy, when they sent out their press release responding to the cabinet changes, most of it was about Jonathan Wilkinson. As Stephen Gilbo was a footnote in their statement. It was at the very last of the graph. It was all about Wilkinson. So a lot of the focus is on him and the influence he's going to have as natural resources minister. And I saw that Christia Freeland, who you mentioned on power and politics yesterday, making a big point to talk about how important Alberta is uh, to the country, to the economy, and personally to her, given that her roots are in this province. So, so you can sort of see how they're, that the government is trying to position some of these uh, moves, even though, as I say, Gilbo is, uh, you know, a lot of people are scratching their head over that one. And, and listen, that's I mean, people will see that, he, you know, he's been long tied to Greenpeace and all these types of things. I yeah. would suggest. And Equitaire. Yeah. And, and you know what? And this is great. This is great conversation for more like over beers or coffees or while you're walking the dogs. Uh, it's a nuanced conversation. But I think back to Rachel Notley's climate panel, the oil sands advisory panel. You remember Zipporah Berman on that yeah. panel. People said, what the hell is a pipeline opponent doing on that panel? And I think you can make the yeah. argument that the panel's findings have more credibility when the conversation has included those dissenting voices. I would also say, yeah. and maybe this is a reach, but I don't think that it is because it, it sort of touches on environmentalism as religion. But I've seen mm-hmm. many people over the years argue that, for example, a Bible-believing evangelical Christian could serve as health minister and have conversations and make policy decisions, including things like abortion and medical assistance in dying, because it's possible for somebody to hold personal beliefs and still do their job as called upon politically. And I think you might be able to suggest the same sort of a thing as someone who's been an ardent environmentalist. And of course, that's a speculative sort of a statement subjective. What is an environmentalist anyway? To a certain degree, we all are environmentalists. But I would say that it's possible that he could still do that job in a way that would reflect the priorities of Canadians, the priorities of the government, while still bringing that unique perspective. Well, I would say, I guess we'll see, right? I mean, he was an activist, let's remember. I mean, he, uh, I, I think he showed up on Ralph Klein's lawn with solar panels uh, one time and rather startled uh, him and his wife. So, I mean, he, he is an activist and he's been known to be uh, provocative. And as I say, I don't know that his uh, time as heritage minister was uh, uh considered particularly stellar as sort of a communicator. But again, I think you have to look at the bigger picture, right? This is a whole of government. He's he's certainly an important piece of it. There's no question. But I, I do get the feeling that Jonathan Wilkinson is riding shotgun here. And, and I think that um, Seamus O'Regan, who I think, you know, had a very good relationship uh, with the Kenny government in labor is a key piece of this. And uh, because the the big conversation sort of post COP26 is also going to be this just transition. And I think that's going to be a tricky terrain. 
And uh, it's going to be a big part of the conversation in this province. Uh, I think that's going to be the big talker coming up. Looking forward to uh, catching up with your colleague right now, Ian Hanna-Mansing. So I'll wrap this up. In closing, did you see this Julie Lalonde's tweet yesterday? Uh, honing in on the National Post coverage oh, of the I cabinet know. shuffle. Yeah. The National Post reporting in Trudeau cabinet shakeup, Harjit Sajjan removed as defense minister, replaced by a woman. I know. Julie was, fixed it. <laughs> Julie speculates apparently it, the National Post has incels writing their headlines. I just... In a way, in a tragic way, got a bit of a kick out of that. Oh, I just want to give my, I just a plug. I know you gave me a great plug on the mayors, but I do want to say, since we're talking sort of uh, the energy industry on West of Central this week, uh, I mean, we're hearing from the politicians, obviously, but I'm going to talk to the CEO, the president and CEO of Synovus. Mm. Because, uh, yes, I think, you know, because we should talk about the industry. Everyone else is talking about the industry. So let's talk to the industry and talk about COP26, the Allen Inquiry, the War Room, uh, the new Minister of Environment and Climate Change and the new Minister of Natural Resources. So I, I think it uh, it'll be interesting. She does not mess around. She never has. The host of the Western Center <laughs> podcast uh, and uh, a good friend of this show, Kathleen, always have appreciated your support. Thanks for making time for us today. I really appreciate it, Ryan. Thanks. You got it. That's Kathleen Petty. Ian Hanamansing, in just a moment, wanted to put it on your radar quickly. Tomorrow is Miracle Treat Day. And so the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park want to let you know there's never been a better time to go grab a blizzard or two. Or 25. As a matter of fact, if your order is big enough, they'll deliver it for free. You got to call the locations to get the details on that at Baseline Road, Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, and Westmount. There's the deal. Uh, when it comes to Miracle Treat Day, it's a great annual tradition. Dairy Queens across the country participate, or at least across the province of Alberta, benefits the Stollery Children's Hospital Foundation. Some great causes, some worthy causes. These five Dairy Queens take all the proceeds, not the profits. This is what sets them apart. Every single cent. In other words, they're going out of pocket to make sure that donation is as big as it can be each and every year. They're well, they're deep into the six figures. So show them a little love tomorrow, won't you? The Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. Our next guest is a legend uh, when it comes to broadcast journalism in Canada. In my mind, he is one of the most talented news presenters this country has seen in years. He has been supportive of this show since inception. He's got a brand new book out, and it is, quite frankly, a thrill to welcome Ian Hanamansing to the show. Good morning. Thanks for making time for us. Yeah, I was happy to make time. I do listen to the podcast, not as much as I'd like to, but, you know, lots of things to do. But the, one of the weirdest experiences is to walk around Vancouver, because I do a lot of walking, listening to podcasts, hearing the latest about what's going on in Alberta, Edmonton in particular, um, you know, the plugs for Dairy Queen or Friesen Brothers and think to myself... I wonder if anybody has any idea what I'm listening to at this moment. Anyway, congratulations on your broadcasting. Like it's more than just a podcast, little yeah. empire. I'll tell you, there are a lot of people across the country. I was just talking to Steve Murphy a few weeks ago, the legendary CTV anchor in Halifax, and we were just marveling at what you've been able to do. And a lot of us are looking at it. We admire it. And we wonder if maybe this will be our future at some point. So congratulations. Well, Ian, I can now retire. Thank you very much. This program is over <laughs> and I shall walk away right into the sunset there will always be a place for you in what we're building if you're looking for a next step but i suspect you have some unfinished
unfinished business as one of the anchors of the national and of course the host of, of cross country checkup that that uh, weekly call in radio show on the cbc uh, we're going to get into your new book and and i'm very much looking forward to it we've got a lot of people writing in some questions to you as well when people heard that you were going to be on the show they want to pick your brain on a on a whole bunch of stuff but but this new book ian uh pandemic spotlight it's not every day that you see an anchor literally write a book on the experience of covering a story that extends or that spans over almost a couple of years and in particular to see that book out while the story's still in a sense developing i mean when, when was that moment for you when you said i, I got to put all this stuff into a book yeah, I mean, it was January of this year. We just come through the the holiday break, and and I was about to interview Dr. Lenora Saxinger and Dr. Isaac Bogosh on more or less the one year anniversary of when the pandemic had become a big story, uh, which was you know January 2020, not declared a pandemic at that point, but still something we were curious about. And and I thought to myself, for the first time in my career, this was a story that I wanted to write a book about. And as you quite rightly point out not the story itself, but the way that it's been covered, and in particular, this very unique role that uh, infectious disease doctors have played. I was just fascinated by the fact that that they stepped forward, first of all, that they kept answering our calls over and over again, that they kept providing, and you know this because you've had Dr. Saxinger on your show, kind of independent, evidence-based advice and that finally they didn't flinch at all when they got a lot of negative and sometimes ugly criticism and, and often unfair criticism. I've never seen this on any story in terms of experts stepping forward who had nothing to gain, right? It's not like they needed more patience in their practice or that they were trying to launch uh, their broadcasting careers or whatever it was. They, they did it because they felt it was important to do. And here we are in late October, 2021, and they're still answering our calls. Uh, I, I'll, I'm going to be honest about something. This, this is a confession. I want to come clean. I have done dozens, if not hundreds of interviews over the course of the years with authors, and I've not read the books. Uh, but this week, <laughs> two interviews in particular, I, I said to myself, and this is a couple of weeks ago, there's no way I'm bringing on Ian Hannah Mansing and Mark Messier to the show without reading their books. Uh, but I didn't need to be convinced. I didn't need to trudge through your book. I didn't need to power through the boring bits because it's a real page turner. These are firsthand testimonies. I want to get into this in a bit. You, you, you profile these doctors, not just in the ERs, not just in the ICUs, but you tell the stories of, of who they are, of what makes them tick, of, of how some of them had to amend or adjust their approach to their profession, how they balanced you know, their, their clinical obligations and what they felt to be the, the onus put upon them by media, how they stepped up in a way to make sure that people had proper information. It's a remarkable read. But I want to touch on your dedication first, Ian. Uh, you dedicate the book. You mention your parents. You mention your wife. You mention your boys. And you say, I've been fortunate to live in two households that treasure words, ideas, and debate. And I thought that was wonderful. Why was it important to well, put that you. in? Yeah, well, I mean, and, and your show does as well, right? And I heard your comments yesterday with, uh, I forget the guy's name, Dog On or whatever uh, Doggo. The, the pseudonym was. Yeah. yeah. I, and, and that, you know, you reading his email and your response to it uh, was fantastic, right? It's one of the things I really like about your show. And it's one of the things I've liked since I was a kid. Like my dad, uh, my parents were uh, school teachers and uh, they're still, you know, doing well in New Brunswick. I, I still talk to them a lot, but I can remember as a kid, my dad would be sort of, uh, 
a, a devil's advocate on on any issue. So, so for example, I'm old enough that I remember, as does Mark Messier, by the way. I interviewed him last week. Fantastic guy. Um, but uh, I remember the 1972 Summit Series. And I remember I was in grade five, I guess, at the time. And, and I remember coming home and saying to my dad, you know, Vladislav Tretiak, who was the young, phenomenal goaltender for the Soviets, the only reason he's as good as he is is because the Soviets removed some of the ligaments in his knees so he was able to, you know, bounce up and down. Absurd, an absurd thing to, for a 10-year-old kid to say. But rather than my dad saying to me, that's absurd, he said, well, hang on a sec. Bobby Orr's not playing in this series, you know, like like his knees are, are shot. And, and you know, maybe the, the Canadians do the same thing. I only say this because as a 10-year-old, you know, brimming with patriotism and, and, and disdain for the Soviets, I couldn't believe he would even dare to say that to me. But that's the house I grew up in. I, you know, I basically had a talk show host as my father. And my mother was like that, too. They would challenge everything. They would challenge me to challenge everything. And so, yeah, in the dedication, um, I do talk about the importance of debate. Your kids, uh, you know, six years old, only kind of yelling boo at you in the house. Uh, but one day uh, you'll find that uh, there's nothing better than having people inside your house who you can trust and who are willing to give you absolutely unvarnished critiques of what you do. And so lots of times when I'm feeling pretty good about myself after a program and, uh, you know, my wife or my kids will say, wait a second, you know, like uh, this part wasn't as good as you thought or conversely, you know, like kind of help you out with your confidence. That has been really important for me. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, back in uh, December of 2019, as you write, this this ProMed alert goes out from uh, the International Society for Infectious Diseases, warning of a pneumonia of unknown origin in Wuhan, China. At what point did you, as a veteran storyteller, as a veteran anchor of a national broadcast, at what point did you sense that this was going to be a little bit different than the thousands of other stories of global concern that you've covered? Yeah, look, I'll be honest with you. And, and you know, in hindsight, I think that some of your listeners and viewers uh, may say, like, what a dummy. How come it took him that long? But I'm going to be honest with you. Um, it was March the 11th. 2020, I was sitting in the newsroom in Vancouver, the CBC newsroom, some of our, you know, our computer monitors on, a few televisions on as well, and we saw the delay in the NBA game, and then all of a sudden the NBA game was cancelled, and then we heard it was because one of the players had tested positive for COVID, and that was the moment we all kind of looked at each other and thought, uh-oh, what's going on? And you'll probably remember that night, Ryan, because the Winnipeg Jets were in Edmonton playing the Oilers, and one of my sons, who you've met before, was actually there working you were probably there working as well um and and that turned out to be i think the last canadian nhl game with fans before the uh, the pandemic set in so looking back at it now how is it possible that you know a veteran journalist well read in on this topic uh needed that to bring it home but one of the things I discovered is that uh, Dr. Zane Chagwa, an infectious disease specialist in Southern Ontario, that was also his moment. That was also the moment for all of the reading and research he had done, all the meetings he was having at his hospital in, in Hamilton, in his case. It was watching that NBA game as well, in his case, at his home in Southern Ontario, where he thought, you know, that was his welcome to the pandemic moment, too. OK, so so if you're an idiot uh for for waiting till march to put it together then i'm an idiot too ian 
Uh, turns out that we have that in common. It was that exact day, and you're right. I was working that game, uh, the Oilers hosting the Jets, and in fact, that proved to be the last game I would ever work as the in-game host of the Edmonton Oilers. I just didn't know it at the time, and a lot has happened yeah. since, and I retired uh, a couple of months ago. I posted about it on my Instagram and my Twitter, uh, but yeah, you're right. That was the moment when I actually lost 20 bucks to my buddy Aaron, who's a big sales rep, big shot for Molson. I was in their suite uh, in the second intermission, probably right around the time that you were in the newsroom at the national uh and and, mm-hmm. and checking in on that same thing and, and aaron comes up to me and he says you saw what happened to utah jazz nba i go yeah he goes he said this might be your last game hosting in a while i said i don't think so he goes i'll bet you 20 bucks and, and I, I promptly lost 20 bucks right on the spot so uh but of course that then the story becomes relevant covid touches down uh it, we, we start to see cases not related to travel in canadian provinces including british columbia and this is when you start building this roster of physicians who I won't call them unknowns before, because obviously talented professionals uh, providing healthcare across Canada in remarkable fashion, but nobody knew the names Dr. Bogosh or Dr. Wong or Dr. Saxinger until anchors like you started talking to them. You probably didn't realize at the time, obviously, the significance of this roster you'd be compiling ultimately to spell it out that a year later, a year and a half later, you'd be writing a book about them. Yeah, no, absolutely not. And 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 I just like I, those things I said to you before. I was just so impressed. I continue to be so impressed by them. And and you know, not only do I in the book profile what it was like for them during those early days of the pandemic and and the first year of the pandemic, but as you know, I also look back at at what it was like for them growing up because as you can probably tell just from what we've been talking about to this point, I'm a huge hockey fan. I grew up a huge hockey fan as a kid. I would, you know, those pre-internet days, I, I would buy all the scholastic books uh, that were for sale about hockey. I knew all the stories about where players, you know, the rink rats and the players that, whose dads had, had created rinks in the back. Moms probably did too, but at the time they would talk about the dads making the rink. And, and I kept thinking with these doctors, I want to do the equivalent stories about them. You know, like like how often do we get to celebrate really smart Canadian scientists and where did they come from? Where did their love of science come from? Where did they learn about things? So, for example, Dr. Lisa Barrett, who's from Newfoundland and uh, is based in Halifax now, she grew up in old Perlican, Newfoundland, a, a fishing village that she says was the fortunate village. It had the fishing plant and the hospital and the high school. Her dad was a lab technician. And so when she was nine or 10 years old, she would spend time in that lab and run the complete blood count machine. I mean, that is the equivalent, I think, of uh, the parents building the rink in the backyard. And, And all of these doctors have stories like that. You know, the other thing, Ryan, I was worried about is to profile nine doctors with the same jobs of roughly the same ages, all in Canada, would seem very similar, but it turns out that wasn't the case. And and also I learned stuff about them, like Dr. Saxinger sitting there in undergrad, flipping a coin uh, metaphorically, trying to decide whether she was gonna study philosophy or, or science more deeply and said, okay, it's gonna come down to how I do in these two courses. And her science course, I forget which one it was, like microbiology or something, uh, beat out dystopian philosophy perhaps by a, by a grade of 92 to 91. Amazing. Uh, and I've learned so much. I mean, and, and these are people I've interviewed Dr. Saxinger four or five times, I think, on, on Real Talk. And I'm learning 
uh, I'm gleaning insight about her from your book. I mean, about her family's history and hunting and her, her, her dad's career coming over from Germany and all that. I mean, it's just amazing. Uh, people need to read the book. To, I mean, to do it justice, Pandemic Spotlight, the new book by Ian Hannah Mansing, our guest here uh, live on this Wednesday edition of Real Talk. One of the things you really dig into and I thought that this was such an important angle is the pressure. I mean, these physicians are feeling pressures that I don't think, quite frankly, Ian, I know that, you know, you you anchor the nightly news and, and hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people tune in. You get pressure, uh, but you're not intubating people. You're not putting people inducing comas. You're not saving people's lives, calling codes. None of us are. None of us are curing cancer that are involved here in storytelling, not to suggest you're not doing important work, but they feel this pressure from their clinical responsibilities and then they're stepping into the spotlight of the national with Ian Hannah Mansing and you're asking them to essentially prescribe advice to people about a pandemic that has moving targets all over the place at any hint I mean I look at Dr. Teresa Tam for example at any hint of inconsistency whether it's on mask policy immigration policy or anything else you've got critics just waiting to pounce to suggest the whole thing is being cooked up, to suggest the whole thing is being blown out of proportion and blown out of control. The way that these doctors manage their stress and the way that you write about it, I, I thought was such an important angle. I think it is important. And, and you know, I'm, I'm sort of getting my uh, medicine here as I'm, I'm sitting here in my living room in Vancouver, looking at this tiny little dot on the top of my laptop, very aware of all the people who are listening to you. As you as you ask that question, I thought one of your lines, I don't induce comas. I can just imagine somebody uh, in the comments or an email going, oh, yeah, no, I've watched his newscast. He induces comas. <laughs> so, uh, you Stop know, you've got to be so careful. And there's so much there was trust on the part of these doctors. Right. They trusted us in the media to treat them fairly, not not to treat them, uh, you know, in a complimentary way, although I, I compliment them because they've done a really good job, but to treat them fairly. Trust that the audience, for the most part, will treat them fairly. And I'll tell you, Ryan, like, obviously, you've become very adept at, at knowing how to sift through reaction that you get on the program. After all these years, I still have a hard time with that. And and in fact, one of my sons, the one that, that you met uh, briefly uh, in Edmonton at the, at the rink, uh, he's taught me and, and, and Dr. Bogosh kind of had the same lesson like don't engage with a lot of like you get an anonymous person who's saying something that is clearly unfair on twitter i used to want to get to the bottom of it because uh, i do like having debates and, and meaningful conversations but that word is the key right meaningful and so i've learned to kind of disengage but i know that dr saxinger has has had uh, you know it's taken her a while to get to the point where what do you respond to what how, how seriously do you take what somebody says to you and i don't mean the, the threat part of it although i think all of them have received threats to to some extent, but even just the the unkind criticism, how, how much do you engage in that? And yet, as I keep saying, they kept coming back. I, one of the things I say in the book is, is that over the years, I've done so many stories on issues like policing, you know, let's say a shooting that, that is very controversial or aviation, a plane crash. And, and what I love is to get experts in the field, maybe they're retired so they can speak more freely, maybe they're academics, and to get them to give their inside kind of informed view of what's going on, because uh, I think that, that helps the public understand what's going on. But over the years, I'll tell you, so many times experts say no, either because they feel uncomfortable with the public scrutiny they're going to get, they don't trust the media, perhaps, 
Or the third thing is there are a bunch of uh, settings and policing is one of them where people will say to those experts that come forward, oh, you love the spotlight. You know, you love being on television. That's, you know, so so people then shrink away from that. These doctors got all of that. They had some of their colleagues who said, boy, see you on there all the time. And rather than kind of step back and say, oh, yeah, you're right. I shouldn't I shouldn't be in that spotlight. They stayed there, not because they wanted to become Dr. Oz and sell us multivitamins, but because they realized they that we needed the information. Uh, and, and, and even this week, you know, on on uh, uh, vaccines, third doses uh, in B.C. made, in, you know, the announcement uh, vaccines for kids under 12. So many people I know have questions about this. And again, we're going to turn to these experts and see what what they know about it. You uh, write about a powerful moment. Dr. Wong was telling you he's been on the show before out of of Saskatchewan, this this moment where he's got uh, a patient in distress, uh, you know, suffering from covid, begging him for hydroxychloroquine. And I wanted to ask you about and and I was talking to our producer, Sarah Hoyles, earlier about this, about how the former President Trump has supercharged the two words both sides, which used to be a rather benign sort of a premise that if we're telling a story in most circumstances, we should endeavor to reflect the different sides of a story or both sides of a story. Can you give us some insight into into, you know, production meetings with the national, uh, you know, how you're deciding, you know, people will say, well, the science isn't settled on this or this is still something under development or or researchers are, are, are looking into the viability of this hydroxychloroquine is just one example but how do you decide what makes it onto sort of the definitive product that is the nightly newscast well i would say i I think from you know as a consumer of a lot of different uh, news sources including yours i i i feel like this is a similar decision that various news organizations have made over the last year and a half and i think we've been well served because of it and that is always question never stop questioning. So for example, on aerosolization of COVID, on safety of vaccinations, you know, take the first vaccine you've been offered was the advice we got from people we trusted. And that's what I did. AZ was the first one I had a chance to get in British Columbia and I did. So, but but at the same time, I mean, you know, question all the time. And as the evidence changes, don't let yourself be be caught in a box. And it's like, well, you know, this is what the advice was. I'm going to continue to uh, to say that 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 is the case. But even as you question everything, learn which sources to trust. And one of the things that I've seen in the COVID story, and I think this goes well beyond the national, and I talk about this in the book, we didn't do stories where it said, you know, on, uh, you know, whatever whatever part of, of this you want to talk about, any drug that, that came up, we didn't say, you know, this person says it's a good idea. Uh, this other person says it's a bad idea. We could have found those voices, right? There's some doctor in Nebraska somewhere who will give us the other view of everything. Sure. But we made judgments sometimes and said to ourselves, okay, on this particular drug or this particular vaccine, the overwhelming evidence is that it is either good or bad or effective or ineffective. And it, it there's a false equivalency, a false balance to do a story that has two experts and say reaction is mixed. So, yeah, so I guess the, the difference here is that we made judgments and, uh, and, and are constantly reassessing those judgments. But we're saying, OK, you know, 
Like, are vaccines safe? Yes, they're overwhelmingly safe. Should I do a story tonight that says, um, you know, reaction is mixed and have two experts, one who says it's safe and one who says it isn't safe? I mean, th that, that would be, you know, balance that actually distorts the story. And we have to be careful not to do that. Well, and, and this is, I mean, one of the, so you, by the way, for purposes of background, you spoke to, these are obviously, there have been follow-up conversations with these physicians. Like your book is not written just based on the interviews, the on-air interviews you've, you've had. You do these deep dives into their histories. The amazing, I really, really enjoyed the reading and sincerely. Um, Dr. Bogosh, uh, who's uh, I think a household name now, everybody would recognize him from his conversations with you. And it seems to be every other national news outlet in the country said made an interesting quote you included in your book where he said i'll talk to anybody with regards to media availability he says i'll talk to anybody i'll talk to left of center media i'll talk to right of center media and i kind of looked at that and i went i mean i i guess people try to pigeonhole real talk on a political spectrum uh i think we're speaking of moving targets i think this show qualifies but but does he even hear somebody assess it as right of center or left of center media would you agree with me that that's not a good thing well i mean i would say that dr bogosh is like next level analytical right like yeah. I, when i grew up there were there were the science people there were the arts people uh there were the athletes he's all of those things right he was an athlete growing up he's obviously a scientist but his analytical kind of arts ability is is like you know it, it's really impressive and i think you have to understand it from the context of being in toronto where they have multiple newspapers and i think that people i i won't make this assessment i'll let people who are watching and listening make the assessment uh the toronto star the globe and mail the national post the toronto sun uh, is there kind of a predominant different um political kind of ideology um among those i mean i think a lot of people would say that i often criticize people who use the word media though i did so far in this interview because you know we're individuals right and and i do this story differently than adrian arsenault does, does a story who does it differently than andrew chang does a story um so we have to be careful with labels but i think dr bogosh's point was that there are certain newspapers podcasts call-in show hosts uh who you can kind of tell where they fit on the political spectrum and he answers every call I wanted to read this email. It's, it's from Alicia who wrote in when she heard that you were going to be on the show. She was excited. And, and she said she wanted to know, what would you say, Ian, uh, to people who deeply mistrust the so-called mainstream media and accuse you or your colleagues, your outlets of being so-called fake news or arbiters of the government's agenda? Uh, she says, I've grown to loathe this term fake news often used as a weapon to dismiss journalism or those you know who don't get their news from the dark corners of the Internet. She says, but I digress. I often wonder how journalists cope with the ire that's thrown at what seems to be a more widely respected profession. Uh, she says, by the way, I've watched the national since I was a kid and having Peter Mansbridge and now Ian Hannah Mansing on the show over the course of two weeks has made my nerdy news loving heart happy. That from Alicia. But the so-called idea of fake news, Ian, how do you manage it? Yeah, there's so much we could talk about. Um, let me say this. I mentioned to you earlier that I walk around Vancouver a lot. I'm kind of obsessed with my Fitbit. And, uh, and, and as I walk around, what's really like heartwarming is the number of people who will say hi. And, and many of those people are reluctant to do it because of this very Canadian sense of not wanting to intrude. But I love when they do it. They say hi and they say really nice things. Of all the times I've walked around the city over the last many months, of all the people who have 
made a point of saying hello to me. There were only two times, and it, both of these happened uh, in the last maybe three months, where where people kind of shouted uh, fake news at me, and and I tried to engage in a conversation, and I realized, you know what? If that's the starting point of somebody coming up to you on the street, it's not really going to go anywhere. I mean, fake news is 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 it's lazy to say that. It's not very meaningful to say that. Look, we've got. And look, you addressed it yesterday when you when you read that uh, comment from from a listener. We are imperfect. We uh, sometimes allow our personal views to bleed into what we do. I think it's important, first of all, that people call us on that. I think it's important that we have a dialogue about things like that. I pay a huge amount of attention to feedback I get from people. I mentioned inside the house, but outside the house as well. While I do cross-country checkup, it's a two-hour call-in show, I'm looking at Twitter during the program. Not necessarily a great strategy, uh, but it also it does kind of help me kind of gauge how things are landing. And uh, so, th- so that's important as well. I also think it's absolutely critical that people in Canada take advantage of, of consuming various media and that we provide various media for them. And listen, I got to tell you, this is why your show is so important. That as we have fewer and fewer organizations controlling more and more media outlets, uh, we need to have independent media outlets as well. And as consumers, we need to kind of toggle back and forth between those. What's Ryan's guest saying today? What did I read in the Globe and Mail? I'm a huge fan of the Globe and Mail. I think it's a fantastic paper, but it's not my only source of news. What was on the national last night? And so we need to be as you know, critical, not in the way of like, oh, everything's stupid, it's fake news, but in terms of using critical thinking in everything we do, from going to the pharmacist and getting our prescription uh, refilled to what media we uh, we consume. You know, we talk, we have, I've had so many interesting conversations with people, typically in the context of curriculum development, and they've talked about a wish list of what they'd like to see. And I mean, as early as elementary school, all the way up to high school into university. And a lot of that is around financial literacy, like real life financial literacy, understanding credit and things like that. And then a big part of that as well is literacy around understanding the validity of sources, understanding how to discern as an individual where red flags might exist with regards to information you're getting, the types of basic questions that anybody should be able to ask to determine whether or not this is a story that may or may not be true. Um, I don't think it should be on a wish list. I think that it's something that as as digital media becomes more and more relevant. I mean, Ian, I, I sure appreciate your support of this show, but you're absolutely right. We, we've got this this national platform that if used irresponsibly could be a total disaster. And, and I think that it shouldn't be a wish list. It should be something that we are uh, ensuring that we prioritize for young learners and adults alike. I think it goes beyond uh, consuming media, though. I think maybe a toolkit, maybe it's a project that somebody who's listening and watching right now could embark on, but a toolkit for critical thinking. Like, honestly, I benefited so much from growing up in the house I did for the reasons I mentioned before, where you question everything. And sometimes it's frustrating for my wife. She'll say something um, and, and I'll question it. And sometimes I'll be right. Sometimes I'll be wrong. Sometimes she's tired after a long day of work and she doesn't want to debate every single thing, but it's what I love to do. Um, so, yeah. So I think that, uh, that, that whether it's lessons for kids in school or a toolkit for all of us is to notice 
thing, you know, I, I just I think back to talking to a friend of mine who who, who mentioned uh, some you know some kind of a health issue that uh, that he was very concerned about, and just the way he framed it, I said like, where did you hear that? And then then he talked about it a little bit, and I instantly could could tell you know the spidey sense thing, like there were things about that that didn't quite sound right. Um, more people need to kind of be reminded of or to learn how to question those things because my goodness, the the disinformation and misinformation out there is not only frustrating, but as we've learned during COVID, as we've learned as people haven't gotten vaccinated for the wrong reasons, um, it can be deadly, right? Misinformation can be deadly. Yeah. You know, I want to ask you in closing uh, a bit of an uncomfortable question. I'm not sure if you want to go into this or not, but I love this from Jillian. Uh, This is a spontaneous one from me. Jillian says, I love how CBC News actually looks like Canada. You look at CBC News and it's a team that looks like they could be your friends for years People would say to me with regards to career aspirations, what what would ultimately be your goal? What would be your ultimate goal? And at that time, I would say to anchor the national. And I would always follow it up by saying, but when Peter retires, that's Ian's gig. Everybody (laughs) felt that way. You may have felt that way. This is where it gets uncomfortable. However, (laughs) as everybody speculated about what CBC might do when Peter Mansbridge retired, and then they rolled out this new format, yourself, Andrew Chang, legendary storyteller, Adrian Arsenault, and of course, chief political correspondent, Rosie Barton, as this kind of four-headed monster doing an amazing job. I'd be curious to know how that came together behind the scenes, because you don't always see that type of format where you've got four skilled professionals, each of them who, who probably thought deep down inside that the job might be theirs, asked to carry that baton together, almost like a relay team. How did that come together? And quite frankly, how's it working out? So listen, Ryan, you can ask me any question anytime. I'm always happy to, to answer your questions, but sometimes I can't answer them fully. And, you know, now that I've written this book, Pandemic Spotlight, my appetite has been whetted to write another book. And maybe at some point, maybe soon, it'll be kind of looking back at my career or looking at my career, hopefully not just looking back. Um, and I can fully kind of answer that question, maybe in the last chapter of that book. I'll say for now that uh, it was pretty surprising, I think, to a lot of us when we heard that, you know, the traditional newscast model of one, maybe two anchors was going to be completely uh, blown apart and changed. And we were going to have four hosts and they were going to be in three different cities. And uh, and then, of course, it's evolved since then. I went to Toronto for a year and was given the opportunity to come back to Vancouver. I, you know, I love it here. And uh, and currently I'm doing Friday and Sundays on the national and and cross country checkup. And, and who knows what the next iteration might be. So, I mean, if I've learned anything, well, of course, you know, you've learned this, uh, you know, very vividly as well. If I've learned anything in this business, you never know what's around the corner. And even though I've worked at CBC for a long, long time, that isn't what I set out to do. And I certainly had opportunities, very enticing opportunities at times to go different places. And I've had very different jobs, you know, from from being a network reporter to um, doing a show on CBC News Network on the evenings in, uh, you know, about 10 years ago, which one moment we were interviewing Penn and Teller, the next moment we were doing live breaking news about the, the Calgary floods. Um, and I mean, I like you, I think, like I love broadcasting and I love journalism and I love how we learn ourselves what to do next. So yeah, so the new national was very different uh, from the model before and, and, and 
you know, some people may know, we're kind of moving back to closer to what the national was like with Peter. It is a conventional newscast, you know, for the first 25 minutes and then kind of expands after that. But in terms of the ins and outs, uh, that may be like a chapter in a memoir in the next few years. Uh, that was a longer answer than I was expecting. So kudos okay. to you for that, Ian. Uh, I want everybody that's listening to this on the podcast, that's watching it live on YouTube, whenever you're checking this out, to make sure you get your hands on Ian's new book, Pandemic Spotlight. I literally did not put it down. I can count on one hand the books I've read from cover to cover in the last 10 years. And this is one of them uh, by Ian Hannah-Mansing, of course, host of Cross Country Checkup on the CBC and one of the co-anchors on The National. Uh, this has meant so much to me, Ian, and I really appreciate it. Well, as you know, I, I love your show. And, uh, you know, maybe one day you'll be franchising Real Talk Halifax, Real Talk Vancouver. But for now, I'm enjoying listening to Real Talk uh, from Edmonton. Well, let's just say that on October 27th, 2021, today we'll plant a seed that maybe someday we'll work together. Who knows? Ian, we'll talk soon. All right. Bye-bye. You got it. Sometimes you got to just plant those little seeds. It can germinate at its own pace. <laughs> we'll just every once in a while drop by and just... Drop a little water on that and see what happens. Mm -hmm. Of course, our company, I should mention, for people that don't know, you see it maybe in the credits that roll at the end of the show, but Relay Communications owns Real Talk, and we've got a big vision for what Relay is going to do, and I mm -hmm. shall leave it at that for now. What a beauty, Ian Hannah-Mansing. I just, I so appreciate that point around media because that's something that has always just irked me when people lump it all together and just say the media which I know is strategic at times but I just I feel like you know we're looking at broadcasting we're looking at journalism we're looking at infotainment they are all so different and and understanding you know that the there's a spectrum <laughs> when it comes to media and absolutely uh, yeah it just it always irks me because I don't and maybe maybe this is wrong-headed but I I don't think I work in, I'm not the media. I'm not. I'm like, my background is journalism. That, yeah. I went and got a journalism degree. Well, the media. It, yeah. It's like people that, that would talk about lawyers. Yeah. You know? yeah. How about lawyers? A bunch of slimy bastards. And, and there's a whole bunch of lawyers going, actually, I've like dedicated my life to impacting change and representing the downtrodden. And, uh, and I don't bill out on hundreds or thousands of, of pro bono hours. And what are you talking about? Right. That's I don't know. That's the first example that came to mind. But you're right. The media or lawyers or politicians. Right. Bunch of slimy dirtbags, except for the whole bunch of them that aren't. Right. Except for the whole bunch of them that show up every single day, bringing integrity to the table out of a out of a drive toward public service. Um, but uh, what's that thing that they say about the one thing can poison the batch? Or what's sort of the idea around the one bad apple? The bad apple. The bad apple. Which is also bogus. What does that mean? Well, just like when people are like, oh, there's just one bad apple. It's like, well, no, there's there's nuances to that. And there are pervasive issues. I mean, yes. if you look at yes. and, and one thing that I mean, if we would have had Ian uh, for an hour and a half, we could have got more into this. But polling shows that the journalism profession is encountering. I was going to say suffering from, but it is encountering a real challenge around credibility. Uh, we talked to Peter Mansbridge about this. In a sense, we talked uh, to Lyndon McIntyre about it as well. With his assessment, the you know, former uh, 
co-presenter on The Fifth Estate. I mean, a, a legendary long-form journalist in Canada uh, about his book, The Winter Wives. He joined us, uh, what was that, I guess about a month ago, it feels like now. But that sort of idea that it is undeniable that there is a mistrust, generally speaking, around media, that, that media is a trusted profession. Um, approximately, I'm pulling the number sort of out of thin air in the sense that I vaguely remember the study. So don't quote me on it. We could Google it. But it's like, you know, 63 to 65 percent of Canadians would say right now they believe the media or the journalism profession to be trustworthy. But then again, like you said, well, then who are you talking about when you say the media? Are you talking about, you know, Ian Hannah Mansing or are you talking about Ezra Levant? Like when you're evaluating trustworthiness or likability or whether or not you'd let these people babysit your kids, you're going to get different answers across the spectrum. I'll leave it at that. So Ezra doesn't sue me along with everybody else. (laughs) We're going to talk about spanking in just a second. I could probably have hard segued there and made it work. I'm glad you didn't. But because it's Wednesday, before we check in with Robin Peters Bennett, we're going to take a second, as we do traditionally every single Wednesday, in partnership with our friends at Tourism Jasper, to take a trip out to the National Park, Jasper National Park. It's my Jasper memories. And this week, I want to give a shout out to everybody that participates in our Real Talk question of the week. If you've signed up for it, you know who you are. You get an email every single week. You're part of our panel uh, presented and coordinated by our research and strategy partners at Y Station. Our panel this week is getting a supplemental email asking you to chime in on how you feel about Jasper in January. And so we want to draw your attention to that. Our partners at Tourism Jasper, very interested in hearing from you, real talkers, about your experience with this legendary winter festival. So if you've signed up for our panel, you'll have an opportunity to fill out this survey and enter in a draw for a two-night stay out in Jasper during Jasper in January. How do you sign up for the panel? It's simple. You can go take a look at our question of the week on our website, ryanjesperson.com, and just go from there. Now, don't be thrown off when you get there. It's it's going to be a question about the election and priorities and the provincial government and the feds. And when you get to the end there, it'll say, do you want to participate in more of these? You click yes. And there you go. Next thing you know, you and your family could be off to Jasper. Can I just show you for those of you watching this on YouTube, a photo that like has meant the world to me forever. This is Wyatt Rudy, our son, now six. This is when we were out in Jasper for Jasper in January. This is literally Wyatt's first skate. And I will never forget this moment. This happened during Jasper in January. Not just a legendary place, but a legendary time of year. And we encourage you to check that out. The festival's on the horizon, and you can find more details by checking out jasper.tourism slash real talk. Now, every My Jasper Memories, we love to feature photos you've sent us using the hashtags MyJasper and RealTalkRJ. Or you can send them to us by way of an email, which is what Greg did. These are unbelievable. Greg says, as a Calgarian, I feel like I've been left out because a lot of the photos I take are generally from the Banff area, not Jasper. He says, well, this last weekend, my partner and I made it out to Jasper and I managed to snap a few images. Hopefully, he says, hopefully you'll like them. Are you, what? I'm, I might try to turn these into wallpaper. I mean, these are unbelievable. These from Greg, absolutely stunning. And I love one of the photos, Sam. He dedicated this in particular to you. He said, this is my best pyramid mountain photo just for Sam. If we can call it up. I mean, this is absolutely stunning. Look at the way that the sun is hitting legendary pyramid mountain. 
Can I ask you to put yourself on camera for a second? Because for people that don't necessarily watch every single minute of every single show, why would Greg, who's who's sort of essentially plucked an Easter egg out of Real Talk here, why would Greg be dedicating a photo of Pyramid Mountain to you, Sam? Let me tell the people. Maybe your mic's... Uh, something's going on with Sam's Yeah, mic. there we go. Sam's been canceled. So, so sorry about that. Well, I mean, it, it might... It might be that I just really, really love Pyramid Mountain. It might be that, that uh, you know, Pyramid Mountain just shines as this golden beacon when you hit it at Mount Golden Hour. Or it might be because I, I have my sleeve rolled up right now. and <laughs> I, I literally have Pyramid Mountain right here on my arm. I love it. Absolutely beautiful. And Greg, an amazing reference. Your photos are stunning. Wanted to shine the light on this as well. This is this is interesting, and it was a pure coincidence. Cheryl Whiskey Jack is going to be joining us on Friday's Real Talk Roundtable. We're going to talk about a sense of place. And more on what that means. When and why can you be proud of where you're from? What do you do when you're feeling uh, conflicted about your place's reputation? I'm so looking forward to it. Cheryl was out with her roommates in Jasper the other weekend. Yeah, her roommates. These are her siblings. She says, here are two photos from 1982 and 2021. We're celebrating my dad's, my pop's 79th trip around the sun in Jasper, making more memories with the best dad ever. Look at this. That was the family about 40 years ago. A stunning backdrop. And then now in the same spot, they're missing one. They've said goodbye, reflected in the photo. And there they are. What a family moment in Jasper. Another My Jasper memory. We're proud to partner with Tourism Jasper. You can learn more at jasper.travel slash real talk. Hoyles, before we welcome our expert guest to the program, can, can we drop in for a second on, on this Real Talk poll? We've asked Real Talkers, essentially, do you spank your kids? Yes, no, or it depends. What are the numbers showing us? So, so far, we've had 263 votes, and we've got 10% saying, yeah, yeah, I, I spank my kids. Okay. Uh, no way is 80%, and then it depends, 9%. 9%. Okay, so one out of 10 parents or respondents to the survey say, well, maybe... 80% it's a non-starter absolutely no and 10% unapologetically yes although am I editorializing by using the word unapologetically let me just say definitively they have chosen the yes Robin Peters Bennett is a psychotherapist an educator a child advocate who specializes in the treatment of mental health problems due to early abuse and neglect she's the founder of stopspanking.org Robin we're grateful you've made time for us this morning welcome to real talk great to be here Ryan how, what how, a beautiful place Jasper is, by the way. Oh I was looking at those gosh. images. I've been to Banff, but never Jasper. I'm just like, it's stunning. stunning where's uh, where's home for you? Uh, Portland, Oregon. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you can appreciate <laughs> you can appreciate the splendor of of mountain peaks that scratch the sky yeah. uh, in Oregon. Yeah. Some legendary peaks there. Yeah. Jasper's so special. What we like on Wednesdays, oftentimes we'll strategically place that feature uh, before we talk about something heavy or after we talk about something heavy. It's yeah. sort of it's sort of like Dude. the digital equivalent <laughs> of fresh air. You know what I mean? It was really helpful. I always get a little nervous when I do an interview. So thanks for the images. <laughs> well, well, please don't be. I want to have it just a, we call it real talk and I want to have a real conversation. Um, spanking to me, uh, I think that this is we, we've made a promise to this audience that this show will live in the gray areas that very rarely will we declare something to be black and white or black or white. Um, does spanking qualify in your mind? Uh, yes, it does. 
actually. Uh, but I'm a bit surprised by it uh, myself. Um, and the more I was researching it, um, because I'm a trauma therapist, I'm interested in, you know, upstream solutions to uh, preventing um, having children have harsh experiences. So when I was looking at, there's a whole body of research called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, and it shows, shockingly and amazingly, is that early stress has a huge biological impact on us throughout our lifetime. And so we went back and looked into that data, um, and there's, you know, over like 1,500 studies. Uh, and you can see that there's similar outcomes between what we would refer to as physical abuse and spanking. So, and, and described by people, their, what they mean by spanking, not what the scientists mean by spanking. So, yeah, it's a negative outcome. It's highly correlated to all sorts of problems around emotional abuse. You're more likely to cross the line physically. And, and what is really stunning to me is the negative impact it has. Uh, it increases your risk in adolescence to drink more alcohol, to use street drugs, and to feel suicidal. So that is like a big one for me. Well, that's huge, um, obviously. Uh, on the flip side, you might get people, and, and I'm not suggesting that this would be a peer-reviewed position, but you may get right. people that may, can I call them advocates of physical discipline or physical correction, like spanking, saying, Kids right. are soft these days or, or kids need to to fear the rod. Right. I mean, these spanking yeah. sticks, the rod sure. of correction. Right. How, how dramatically have attitudes changed with regards to the mainstream, would you say, over the last 20 to 50 years? Well, I'd say that your audience it has is a little bit beyond the norm in terms of their rejection of spanking. I think mm -hmm. the average in the state is it's it's dropping. Thankfully, um, it's getting closer to sixty percent and maybe fifty percent approval. And I think that's because uh, it's not just the issue of spanking. People are understanding brain science more in their parenting, and they're beginning to understand what infants and small children need. And so it sort of starts to become more obvious, maybe not even from directly looking at the spanky research, but I think that parents are more aware of how early experiences don't show up. You don't really see the negative consequences immediately. It, in time, though, it cascades, and that's how development works, is that these early experiences are foundational. Um, they are foundational experiences. And so the brain continues to develop over time. And as it does, then you will see this rollout or cascading effect of vulnerabilities um, in children. You're going to be uh, participating uh, and you'll be speaking on November 19th at the Children's Mental Health Online Conference uh, presented by the Institute of Child Psychology. Um, you know, there's a panel discussion uh, presented here at this online conference about spanking, which would suggest to me, I mean, depending on how the panel plays out, of course, hasn't happened yet, that this may not be an issue that's settled, so to speak. What are important well, points do you think that need to be considered? Well, I think one of the things we're wanting to talk about is I'm going to be speaking with Dr. George Davis, who was the juvenile justice clinical director in New Mexico for really most of his career. So he's worked with children that, um, maybe parents would be concerned that if they aren't harder on their child or they don't have a firm line or they don't use the rod, that their children will be more likely to uh, get involved in criminal activity. And, you know, this idea that, that kids um, need spanking 
in order to stay on the straight and narrow, but in fact, the research is showing the opposite, and my colleague actually did an in-depth research study, an adverse childhood experiences study on the population of children in the juvenile justice system, and the data is overwhelmingly stunning, and of course, part of it shows that um, these children have experienced the rod, quite a bit of it actually, probably beyond the norm. So I want him to be in the conversation. Um, Dr. Uh, Lockhart is going to be speaking about ACEs, and Yolanda Renteria is going to be speaking about um, really other kinds of parenting practices, but we're also going to be addressing the racial issues because I think there's a question as to in cultural, certain cultures, um, like in the Latina community is, they call it La Chancla, you know, uh, in the African American community, there's a sense that there, that it's more supported. It is more supported, but not much, you know, statistically speaking. So we're just sort of going to address those issues as well. Uh, but really we're looking at, how does positive parenting and these approaches um, really lend a, a buffering or risk, a preventative risk factor to children having negative outcomes? So it's to help people understand the science and also the, the actual mechanism that, uh, that drives this. And, and, and the bottom line is it's really about disrupting the self-regulatory equipment of children so that they can manage themselves. Because, you know, we all know that we can all behave very badly if we're tired, grouchy, get in an argument, we say things we don't want to say. Um, if we can't manage our level of stress and arousal, we behave very differently, and children, of course, are exactly the same. Uh, and so that is actually a neurological, um, biological structure that allows you to regulate. It's not just psychological, and it's important to understand that um, spanking can create a neurological effect, not just a psychological one. Robin, what do we know when you talk about, you know, a, a child that's spanked, you know, can go on to have, you know, increased uh, an increased chance of, of uh, you know, using uh, drugs or alcohol at a younger age or maybe in a problematic fashion, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what do we know about why or how that happens? How do you draw the line from childhood to adulthood in that context? Right, like how do you interpret this trajectory and why is that? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think how we think about it, the interesting thing is that the spanking research is just showing that it's on a continuum of violence, uh, similar to physical abuse, but not nearly as, um, you know, harsh and, and problematic. So it's what we call in science a dose-rate relationship. So the more you do it, the worse it is. And how you think of the trajectory uh, is that, you know, the brain develops from the inside out and the bottom up. And so what happens is if you disrupt the foundational lower part of the brain, then you see ongoing developmental difficulties over time. And one of those is the ability to manage pain or to be able to manage social rejection or to be able to handle disruptions in relationship. So young people in their adolescence who have had early stress where the relationship has been compromised, but also their self-regulatory equipment has been compromised, they actually experience greater amounts of pain in social problems. So if their friends reject them or there's a bullying situation or there's just conflict, they are less likely to be able to seek comfort in relationship and less likely to feel good uh, physiologically as a result of relationship. Is it? I, I don't know why I do. I'm like, maybe I shouldn't ask this question, but sometimes I think those are the best <laughs> questions to ask. Yeah, they are. 
ask it. Do you get to a point where you say, I mean, certain things to me in in life are like non-starters. Like an obvious example would be you shouldn't smoke in a car with the windows rolled up when there's kids in the car or you shouldn't drive drunk uh, ever, but you shouldn't drive drunk. Obviously, you got kids in the car. You should you know, have zero, zero, zero as your blood alcohol. Like these sort of like definitive people will say he this is black and white to me. Do you personally feel like are you in a position where you would say spanking is bad parenting? Um, I would say, well, let me just put it to you this way. I have a lot of compassion for parents. I myself am a grandmother now, but I was a very young mother and I spanked my children. So um, am I going to say I was a bad parent? I'm going to say I made mistakes and part of my parenting was destructive. And there was a lot of what I did that was good. And my children are beautiful human beings and I love them and I'm proud of them and they're loving and they're empathic and I think they're wonderful. So was I a bad mother? I was a good enough mother with some problems. (laughs) You know, I didn't have the support I needed, you know, 30 years ago, 25 years ago to understand other ways to manage stress. I think that spanking children is hard on parents, not just children. It activates your nervous system. It puts you in a state of threat. You cannot hit your child unless you are temporarily forgetting that you are what, what it is like to be them. You, you temporarily lose your, in, your empathy. That, that's what allows you to hit them. And that's because your own nervous system is distressed. And there's reasons for that. People my age, particularly, everybody was spanked. And not just at home, but in school. So, um, you know, so I wouldn't say it's bad parenting. I would say it's misinformed and it's high risk and it's destructive and it's violence. And, you know, yelling is violence. You know, we're a very violent culture and we need to move towards supporting parents to find better ways to manage when they're overwhelmed and they want to yell and hit. May I ask a personal question? I mean, you've divulged, you said, you, you know, you were a young mom, you know, you, you spanked your kids and obviously your feelings of yeah. your positions changed on that. Was there like a, was there a final spanking? Was it, was there something that happened at one point where you said, I'm never doing this again? Um, well, for me, I never thought it was okay. So I wasn't a spanker that thought, oh, it's good to spank. I always mm-hmm. thought hitting was terrible, but I myself was raised in a, in a, I'd like, um, if you go out and look at, um, I think the ACE is too high doc org, I think is the link. And you look at your adverse childhood experiences, you can have one to 10 or zero to 10. You know, I had nine. So my nervous system was very fragile and I loved my children very much, but I, you know, I would get overwhelmed and I didn't have enough support to be able to manage. I didn't know what else to do. I didn't know developmentally what was appropriate so my expectations were too high I was worried about them being bad I was a very worried mother and I think that speaks to society and the way it puts more pressure on parents that your children should behave and if they're not behaving you're not a good parent that's why I'm really really uh, careful not to judge parents as bad uh, that is, yeah, aces2high.com. I'm just seeing it for the first time. Uh, ACE, of course, ACE, Adverse Childhood Experiences, an interesting resource if people want to check that out at aces2high.com. What do you make of the societal temperature around spanking? Like, I think it would have been different. I mean, I'm, I'm, everyone's sort of seen the scene. Do I want to pick on Walmart? I don't know. It just seems to happen in Walmart parking lots where a parent is screaming at the child and spanking them on the fly as they make their way back to the vehicle. And I feel like in this day and age, strangers might be more inclined to step in 
or to like call the cops or to or to intervene. Um, that wouldn't have happened 20 or 30 years ago. No, I mean, even 10 years ago when yeah. I was posting on Facebook and saying that spanking is a form of domestic violence, that was like, woo, that seriously upset people and shamed people. And I understand. Um, but by definition, yeah, I, I mean, talk- by definition, isn't it domestic violence? Yeah, it is. It's, it's violence <laughs> in the home. I mean, you're hitting your child, you're hitting a family member. What, what else are you going to call it? It's actually more damaging, too. I mean, interestingly, you know, uh, well, it's just more damaging, but we actually think it's less damaging. I think that we're starting to shift toward really appreciating children and their basic human rights. That's an evolving sort of consciousness in our culture. I think that um, we still have a ways to go. Uh, 63 countries have banned spanking as part of the um, Convention on the Rights of the Child. And it has to do with recognizing their basic human rights. And I think Europe is more progressed in this area, uh, probably more sensitive around human rights in general. Uh, and it's, it's a tough one for us as Americans. And I think part of it is that we are so independent that we put parents in a position to be independent. And then we, what, our first response if they're spanking is to call the cops. I mean, that's like crazy. Like, <laughs> like calling the cops on a parent. What about our first response being resourcing parents, helping them not get to the point where they're so overwhelmed that they're hitting their kid in the parking lot. Um, and also to, not, to also add that, you know, lower income families have a lot more stress. And of course, spanking is much greater. So it's not that these parents necessarily think it's a great idea. Some of them might because they're raised to think that. But many of them are um, just completely overwhelmed. So, Robin, let's let's give people in closing here a couple of uh, tool. I mean, one tool. Let me point out people can check out stopspanking.org and learn more about what you're doing. They can follow you on Twitter at stop spanking. But. What are a couple of alternatives uh, in that moment, that heated moment where the parent is feeling so much stress, the child's flipping out. There's a there's a perceived need or a very real need for intervention or so-called discipline or correction. Right. Uh, What's an alternative? And maybe you're in public where you're like completely humiliated because your child's flipping and they're at you. The first thing I think is to notice that you actually influence your child by your own regulation. So can you notice your breath? Like get back in your own body because when our children act that way, it actually, through empathy, we get aroused and, and worked up as well. And then our upper brain or our more intelligent self and our more empathic self isn't available. So the number one thing you do when you want to hit your child is just notice that you're here and you're breathing and maybe move your body, walk around a little bit, anything to help your body recognize that you can escape this situation and you can manage it so that your animal body basically doesn't go into reaction and then hit them, which is the striking out comes from that. So breathing. The second one is to think, if you can, is to think, my child is doing the best that they can and they're struggling and they're making me struggle and they're creating a struggle inside of me. So we're struggling here together. Uh, They're not intending to do anything to me. So again, you're trying to remind yourself that even though your body feels threatened, your child's not a threat, that they're actually just really having a hard time. 
I really appreciate, uh, and I'm not the only one here. I want to say that our, our live chat right now, the, this audience is appreciating your candor and your vulnerability and your personal perspective on this. I know that this is a subject that is of great interest to people uh, because I think for the most part, it's safe to suggest, generally speaking, parents want what's best for their kids. And parents yeah. make mistakes just like kids make mistakes and, and traditions change and parenting styles change and evolve. And it's important to have, I think, empathetic and open-minded and reasonable and challenging conversations about this. And I'm grateful for the advocacy and, and for your time here on the show. That's Thank you so much. Yeah, we have to really hold compassion for parents because the first thing you're going to feel is criticized and shamed. And this is a shaming culture. We're trying to move out of that into a place of empathy. Also, just for people to know on Stop Spanking, there are videos and there are um, parenting resources. So, you know, just to get support, you know, there is support out there. That's stopspanking.org. People can uh, check it out. Of course, our guest, trauma therapist Robin Peters Bennett, who will be speaking November 19th at the Children's Mental Health Online Conference. You can follow the links to check out more on that. Joining us from stunning Portland, Oregon. Robin, thanks so very much. Thank you, Ryan. Yeah, you bet. I really like that approach. You know, I, th- I think uh, you can have conversations with people about this and, and their personal experiences as children or as adults, as parents, uh, depending on where you are. There may be parents looking back, uh, you know, maybe their kids are grown now or there may be, you know, maybe someone's pregnant right now listening to this going, I want to, you know, I, I, people forget. I was going to say people forget what it's like to be pregnant. Believe it or not, I have never known what it's like to be pregnant. <laughs> Shocking. Yeah. But you got to think for, for parents that are preparing for that assignment, uh, and, and this comes back to that roundtable we had a couple of months ago on the implications of, of uh, you know, uh, pregnancy and vaccines, vaccine hesitancy. I mean, that's what that whole thing is, is all around. People saying, um, you know, I'm not a science denier. I'm not a covid denier. I'm not an anti-vaxxer per se, but I'm vaccine hesitant right now because I'm expecting a child and I want to do absolutely everything. And if you're feeling that way, you have to check out the roundtable. It was great, uh, really informative. Again, real talk about those types of issues. But somebody that's pregnant is is going to adjust what they what they eat, how they sleep, how they exercise. Mm-hmm. You know, smoking, uh, all kinds of things. You know, whether or not you're going to you know spray paint something because you're you don't want to ingest the. I mean, you just take every possible precaution or lift something heavy. Is everything? Yeah, and a lot of that comes with as well the realization that there will be challenges all the way through it's what that book you know what to expect when you're expecting yeah it's that whole idea of like what what is this going to this transition this like tectonic shift major what 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 it's going to do to your life i just i really want to acknowledge that we've we've talked about a lot of of really heavy stuff today yeah and um, I just want to put out there that if folks are needing support, there's the kids helpline at 1-800-668-6868. And in Alberta, if uh, you're needing Alberta's one line for sexual violence, it's 1-866-403-8000. You can text and chat uh, online as well. So. I appreciate you putting that in there. Um, 
One other heavy thing. I don't know the details, uh, but, you know, this show, we, we record it live. We push it out live. Uh, you may be hearing this later in the afternoon, and, and we may have more information at that point. But I have uh, seen some suggestion that there's a developing story here with a suit. Is, is it being brought to the Alberta legislature? Is this reaching as high yes. as the premier's office around alleged sexual harassment? What do we know at this point? Yeah, the former chief of staff in Alberta's legislature says that her termination was tied to calling out conduct issues and it's around sexual harassment and intoxication okay and it's um it's yeah sexual harassment heavy drinking at ministers and legislature uh, staff in legislative offices okay allegations at this point at least this is the first i'm hearing of it so this is something that the show will be on and cover in the days and weeks and months to come obviously a story of relevance uh before we go uh, I want to remind you today that these types of conversations, uh, the frivolous and fun ones and the more serious ones are all made possible because we have this roster of real talk builders. We call them our sponsors that are committed to real talk that are committed to community. And that includes the family owned Grand Dog Essentials quality raw food. Uh, what better endorsement can I provide than to tell you this is what we feed our dogs. They eat Grand Dog quality raw food each and every week. And I want to remind you again, it's not just raw food either. At granddog.ca, you can check out and shop for their supplements. Are you familiar with so-called leaky gut? It's not a good thing. If your dog's living with leaky gut, they've got gut guard and kettle cough, obviously. I mean, I don't mean to draw a parallel or to get all cute between spanking and then dog food mentions. I'm not trying to be cute or to segue here, but puppy parents have their own stresses when you bring yeah. an eight-week-old puppy home and you want to make sure that that dog is going to live a healthy life kennel cough is all over your radar mm -hmm. did you know there's a supplement for that you can learn more at granddog.ca the promo code real talk gets you 10 percent off your first time order our friends at friesen brothers want to remind you at their 16 locations across the province of alberta it's boot go time that's right buy one get one for halloween some tasty treats there. Buy one, get one at your friendly neighborhood Friesen Brothers. Of course, if you're feeling like maybe tonight's the night you'd like to skip making dinner, but you still feel like a home-cooked meal, Friesen Brothers is heads and shoulders above any other grocery store in the province. Their hot kitchens, even their ready-baked fresh pizzas, these mother dough pizzas, they're a family favorite of ours for our Friday pizza and a movie night at home. I personally recommend them. Friesen Brothers is Alberta-owned and Alberta-grown. The team at Westworld Computers makes sure that we have what we need to put this show together every single day, and they can do the same for you. Whether it's a young learner in the home looking for an iPad, whether it's somebody that's trying to get back into some sort of a fitness regimen looking for what the Apple Watch can provide with regards to heart rate and steps and all the technology there. The Series 7 Apple Watch available right now online from Westworld on their website, westworld.ca. They'll ship across Canada. And don't forget, you can book your service appointment there as well. 40 years of trusted Apple certified service at Westworld. And our friends at Eden Landscaping say, just because the snow is about to fall. Yeah, that's right. I said it. It's already falling in pockets of Canada, including our home province. It doesn't mean that construction has to stop. Maybe you're looking for an outdoor sort of a gazebo or pergola setup. Maybe you'd like some sort of a roof over your outdoor cook station so you could barbecue in January. What about a three-season room that expands your home's footprint, allows the family to gather, gather together in comfort? Eden Landscaping does it all at landscapeedmonton.ca. 
Tomorrow's show is going to be a big one. Uh, arguably the greatest leader in the history of organized sport. Yeah, I said it. They named a leadership award after him. Mark Messier, our guest on the show. We'll get into the pages of his new book. And as mentioned, more to come on the developing story front. Right after we sign off here, our team, including Sarah Hoyles, will go to work making sure you know what you need to know. Make it a great Wednesday. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson. Editorial producer, Sarah Hoyles. Technical producer, Sam Brooks. Managing director, Josh Dunford. Account coordinator, Tanya Franklin. Merchandise operations, Katie Cook-Chivers. Website design, Mike Johnston. Voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Supriya Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Julie Rohr, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis Settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.